Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 32 of David Copperfield this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter 32 The Beginning of a Long Journey. What is natural in me is natural in many other men, I infer, and so I am not afraid to write that I never had loved Steerforth better than when the ties that bound me to him were broken. In the keen distress of the discovery of his unworthiness, I thought more of all that was brilliant in him. I softened more towards all that was good in him. I did more justice to the qualities that might have made him a man of noble nature and a great name than I ever had done in the height of my devotion to him. Deeply as I felt my own unconscious part in his pollution of an honest home, I believe that if I had been brought face to face with him, I could not have uttered one reproach. I should have loved him so well still, though he fascinated me no longer. I should have held in so much tenderness the memory of my affection for him, that I think I should have been as weak as a spirit-wounded child, in all but the entertainment of a thought that we could ever be reunited. That thought I never had. I felt, as he had felt, that all was at an end between us. What his remembrances of me were I have never known. They were light enough, perhaps, and easily dismissed, but mine of him were as the remembrances of a cherished friend who was dead. Yes, Steerforth, long removed from the scenes of this poor history. My sorrow may bear involuntary witness against you at the judgment throne, but my angry thoughts or my reproaches never will, I know. The news of what had happened soon spread through the town, insomuch that as I passed along the streets next morning I overheard the people speaking of it at their doors. Many were hard upon her, some few were hard upon him, but towards her second father and her lover there was but one sentiment. Among all kinds of people a respect for them in their distress prevailed, which was full of gentleness and delicacy. The seafaring men kept apart when those two were seen early walking with slow steps on the beach, and stood in knots talking compassionately among themselves. It was on the beach, close down by the sea, that I found them. 
It would have been easy to perceive that they had not slept all last night, even if Peggotty had failed to tell me of their still sitting, just as I left them, when it was broad day. They looked worn, and I thought Mr. Peggotty's head was bowed in one night more than in all the years I had known him. But they were both as grave and steady as the sea itself, then lying beneath a dark sky, waveless, yet with a heavy roll upon it, as if it breathed in its rest, and touched on the horizon with a strip of silvery light from the unseen sun. "'We have had a mort of a talk, sir,' said Mr. Peggotty to me, when we had all three walked a little while in silence, "'of what we ought and don't ought to do. But we see our course now.' I happened to glance at Ham, then looking out at sea upon the distant light, and a frightful thought came into my mind. Not that his face was angry, for it was not. I recall nothing but an expression of stern determination in it, that if ever he encountered Steerforth he would kill him. "'My duty here, sir,' said Mr. Peggotty, "'is done, and I'm a-going to seek my—' He stopped, and went on in a firmer voice. "'I'm a-going to seek her.' That's my duty evermore. He shook his head when I asked him where he would seek her, and inquired if I were going to London tomorrow. I told him I had not gone today, fearing to lose the chance of being of any service to him, but that I was ready to go when he would. I'll go along with you, sir, he rejoined, if you're agreeable, tomorrow. We walked on again for a while in silence. Ham, he presently resumed, he'll hold on to his present work, and go and live along with my sister. The old boat yonder. Will you desert the old boat, Mr. Peggotty? I gently interposed. My station, Master Davy, he returned, ain't there no longer, and if ever a boat foundered, since there was darkness on the face of the deep, that one's gone down. But no, sir, no, I don't mean as it should be deserted, fur from that. We walked on again for a while, as before, until he explained. My wishes is, sir, as it shall look day and night, winter and summer, as it has always looked, since she first knowed it. If ever she should come a-wanderin' back, I wouldn't have the old place seem to cast her off, you understand, but seem to tempt her to draw nigher to it, and to peep in, maybe, like a ghost, out of the wind and rain, through the old winder at the old seat by the fire. Then maybe, Master Davy, seeing none but Mrs. Gummidge there, she might take heart to creep in, trembling, and might come to be laid down in her old bed, and rest her weary head where it was once so gay. I could not speak to him in reply, though I tried. Every night, said Mr. Peggotty, as regular as the night comes, the candle must be stood in its old pane at last, that if ever she should see it, it may seem to say, Come back, my child, come back. If ever there's a knock, Ham, particular a soft knock, after dark at your aunt's door, don't you go nigh it. Let it be her, not you, that sees my fallen child. He walked a little in front of us, and kept before us for some minutes. During this interval I glanced at Ham again, and observing the same expression on his face, and his eyes still directed to the distant light, I touched his arm. Twice I called him by his name, in the tone in which I might have tried to rouse a sleeper, before he heeded me. When I at last inquired on what his thoughts were so bent, he replied, "'On what's afore me, Master Davy, and over yon?' "'On the life before you, do you mean?' He had pointed confusedly out to sea. "'Ay, Master Davy, I don't rightly know how tis, but from over yon there seemed to me to come the end of it like, looking at me as if he were waking, but with the same determined face.' "'What end?' I asked, possessed by my former fear.' 
I do it know, he said thoughtfully. I was calling to mind that the beginning of it all did take place here, and then the end come. But that's gone, Master Davy, he added, answering, as I think, my luck. You ha'n't no call to be afeard of me, but I'm kind of muddled. I don't fare to feel no matters. Which was as much to say that he was not himself and quite confounded. Mr. Peggotty, stopping for us to join him, we did so, and said no more. The remembrance of this, in connection with my former thought, however, haunted me at intervals, even until the inexorable end came at its appointed time. We insensibly approached the old boat and entered. Mrs. Gummidge, no longer moping in her especial corner, was busy preparing breakfast. She took Mr. Peggotty's hat and placed his seat for him, and spoke so comfortably and softly that I hardly knew her. Daniel, my good man,' she said, "'you must eat and drink, and keep up your strength, for without it you'll do nout. Try, that's a dear soul, and if I disturb you with my clickin', she meant her chattering, tell me so, Daniel, and I won't.' When she had served us all, she withdrew to the window, where she said you was the employed herself in repairing some shirts and other clothes belonging to Mr. Peggotty, and neatly folding and packing them in an old oilskin bag such as sailors carry. Meanwhile she continued talking in the same quiet manner. "'All times and seasons, you know, Daniel,' said Mrs. Gummidge, "'I shall always be here, and everything will look according to your wishes. I'm a poor scholar, but I shall write to you, odd times, when you're away, and send my letters to Master Davy. Perhaps you write to me too, Daniel, odd times, and tell me how you fare to feel upon your lone, lorn journeys.' "'You'll be a solitary woman here, I'm afeard,' said Mr. Peggotty. "'No, no, Daniel,' she returned. "'I shan't be that. Don't you mind me. "'I shall have enough to do to keep a being for you.' "'Mrs. Gummidge meant a home. "'Again you come back, to keep a being here for any that may hap to come back, Daniel. "'In the fine time I shall set outside the door as I used to do. "'If any should come nigh, they shall see the old widow woman true to him, a long way off.' What a change in Mrs. Gummidge in a little time! She was another woman, she was so devoted, and she had such a quick perception of what it would be well to say, and what it would be well to leave unsaid, she was so forgetful of herself, and so regardful of the sorrow about her, that I held her in a sort of veneration. The work she did that day, there were many things to be brought up from the beach and stored in the outhouse, as oars, nets, sails, cordage, spars, lobster-pots, bags of ballast and the like, and though there was abundance of assistance rendered, there being not a pair of working hands on all that shore but would have laboured hard for Mr. Peggotty, and being well paid in being asked to do it, yet she persisted all day long in toiling under weights that she was quite unequal to, and fagging to and fro on all sorts of unnecessary errands as to deploring her misfortunes she appeared to have entirely lost the recollection of ever having had any she preserved an equable cheerfulness in the midst of her sympathy which was not the least astonishing part of the change that had come over her querulness was out of the question i did not even observe her voice to falter or a tear to escape from her eyes the whole day through until twilight when she and I and Mr. Peggotty being alone together, and he having fallen asleep in perfect exhaustion, she broke into a half-suppressed fit of sobbing and crying, and taking me to the door, said, "'Ever bless you, Master Davy. Be a friend to him, poor dear.' Then she immediately ran out of the house to wash her face, in order that she might sit quietly beside him, and be found at work there when he should awake. 
in short i left her when i went away that night the prop and staff of mr peggotty's affliction and i could not meditate enough upon the lesson that i read in mrs gummidge and the new experience she unfolded to me it was between nine and ten o'clock when strolling in a melancholy manner through the town i stopped at mr omer's door mr omer had taken it so much to heart his daughter told me that he had been very low and poorly all day and had gone to bed without his pipe a deceitful bad-hearted girl said mrs yoram there was no good in her ever don't say so i returned you don't think so yes i do cried mrs yoram angrily no no i said mrs yoram tossed her head endeavouring to be very stern and cross but she could not command her softer self and began to cry i was young to be sure but i thought much the better of her for this sympathy and fancied it became her as a virtuous wife and mother very well indeed whatever would she do sobbed minnie where would she go what would become of her oh how could she be so cruel to herself and him i remembered the time when minnie was a young and pretty girl and i was glad she remembered it too so feelingly my little minnie said mrs yoram has only just now got to sleep even in her sleep she is sobbing for emily all day long little minnie has cried for her and asked me over and over again whether emily was wicked what can i say to her when emily tied a ribbon off her own neck round little minnie's the last night she was here and laid her head down on the pillow beside her till she was fast asleep the ribbon's round my little minnie's neck now it ought not to be perhaps but what can i do emily is very bad but they were fond of one another and the child knows nothing mrs yoram was so unhappy that her husband came out to take care of her leaving them together i went home to peggotty's more melancholy myself if possible than i had been yet that good creature i mean peggotty all untired by her late anxieties and sleepless nights was at her brother's where she meant to stay till morning an old woman who had been employed about the house for some weeks past while peggotty had been unable to attend to it was the house's only other occupant besides myself as i had no occasion for her services i sent her to bed by no means against her will and sat down before the kitchen fire a little while to think about all this i was blending it with the deathbed of the late barkers and was driving out with the tide toward the distance at which ham had looked so singularly in the morning when i was recalled from my wanderings by a knock at the door there was a knocker upon the door but it was not that which made the sound the tap was from a hand and low down upon the door as if it were given by a child it made me start as much as if it had been the knock of a footman to a person of distinction i opened the door and at first looked down to my amazement on nothing but a great umbrella that appeared to be walking about of itself but presently i discovered underneath it miss moucher i might not have been prepared to give the little creature a very kind reception if on her removing the umbrella which her utmost efforts were unable to shut up she had shown me the volatile expression of face which had made so great an impression on me at our first and last meeting but her face as she turned it up to me was so earnest and when i relieved her of the umbrella which would have been an inconvenient one for the irish giant she wrung her little hands in such an afflicted manner that i rather inclined towards her miss boucher said i after glancing up and down the empty street without distinctly knowing what i expected to see besides how do you come here what is the matter she motioned to me with her short right arm to shut the umbrella for her and passing me hurriedly went into the kitchen when i had closed the door and followed with the umbrella in my hand i found her sitting on the corner of the fender 
It was a low iron one, with two flat bars at top to stand plates upon, in the shadow of the boiler, swaying herself backwards and forwards, and chafing her hands upon her knees like a person in pain. Quite alarmed at being the only recipient of this untimely visit, and the only spectator of this portentous behaviour, I exclaimed again, "'Pray tell me, Miss Moucher, what is the matter? Are you ill?' "'My dear young soul,' returned Miss Moucher, squeezing her hands upon her heart, one over the other, "'I am ill here. I am very ill. To think that it should come to this, that I might have known it and perhaps prevented it, if I hadn't been a thoughtless fool.' Again her large bonnet, very disproportionate to the figure, went backwards and forwards, in her swaying of her little body to and fro, while a most gigantic bonnet rocked in unison with it upon the wall. "'I am surprised,' I began, "'to see you so distressed and serious,' when she interrupted me. "'Yes, it's always so,' she said. "'They're all surprised, these inconsiderate young people, fairly and full-grown, to see any natural feeling in a little thing like me. They make a plaything of me, use me for their amusement, throw me away when they are tired, and wonder that I feel more than a toy horse or a wooden soldier. Yes, yes, that's the way, the old way.' it may be with others i returned but i do assure you it is not with me perhaps i ought not to be at all surprised to see you as you are now i know so little of you i said without consideration what i thought what can i do returned the little woman standing up and holding out her arms to show herself see what i am my father was and my sister is and my brother is i have worked for sister and brother these many years hard mr copperfield all day i must live i do no harm if there are people so unreflecting or so cruel as to make a jest of me what is left for me to do but make a jest of myself them and everything if i do so for the time whose fault is that mine no not miss moucher's i perceived if i had shown myself a sensitive dwarf to your false friend pursued the little woman shaking her head at me with reproachful earnestness how much of his help or goodwill do you think i should ever had if little moucher who had no hand young gentleman in the making of herself addressed herself to him or the like of him because of her misfortunes when do you suppose her small voice would have been heard little moucher would have as much need to live if she was the bitterest and dullest of pigmies but she couldn't do it no she might whistle for her bread and butter till she died of air miss moucher sat down on the fender again and took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes be thankful for me if you have a kind heart as i think you have she said that while i know well what i am i can be cheerful and endure it all i am thankful for myself at any rate that i can find my tiny way through the world without being beholden to any one and that in return for all that is thrown at me in folly or vanity as i go along i can throw bubbles back if i don't brood over all i want it is the better for me and not the worse for any one if i am a plaything for you giants be gentle with me miss moucher replaced her handkerchief in her pocket looking at me with very intent expression all the while and pursued i saw you in the street just now you may suppose that i am not able to walk as fast as you with my short legs and short breath and i couldn't overtake you but i guessed where you came and came after you i have been here before to-day but the good woman wasn't at home do you know her i demanded i know of her and about her she replied from Ulmer and yorum i was there at seven o'clock this morning do you remember what steerforth said to me about this unfortunate girl that time when i saw you both at the inn 
the great bonnet on miss moucher's head and the greater bonnet on the wall began to go backwards and forwards again when she asked this question i remembered very well what she referred to having had it in my thoughts many times that day i told her so may the father of all evil confound him said the little woman holding up her forefinger between me and her sparkling eyes and ten times more confound that wicked servant but i believe it was you who had a boyish passion for her i i repeated child child in the name of blind ill fortune cried miss moucher wringing her hands impatiently as she went to and fro upon the fender why did you praise her so and blush and look disturbed i could not conceal from myself that i had done this though for a reason very different from her supposition what did i know said miss moucher taking out her handkerchief again and giving one little stamp on the ground whenever at short intervals she applied it to her eyes with both hands at once he was crossing you and wheedling you i saw and you were soft wax in his hands i saw had i left the room a minute when his man told me that young innocence so he called you and you may call him old guilt all the days of your life had set his heart upon her and she was giddy and liked him but his master was resolved that no harm should come of it more for your sake than hers and that that was their business here how could i but believe him i saw steerforth soothe and please you by his praise of her you were the first to mention her name you own to an old admiration of her you were hot and cold and red and white all at once when i spoke to you of her what could i think what did i think but that you were a young libertine in everything but experience and had fallen into hands that had experience enough and could manage you having the fancy for your own good oh 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 they were afraid of my finding out the truth exclaimed miss moucher getting off the fender and trotting up and down the kitchen with her two short arms distressfully lifted up because i'm a sharp little thing i need to be to get through the world it's all and they deceived me altogether and i gave the poor unfortunate girl a letter which i fully believe was the beginning of her ever speaking to Littimer, who was left behind on purpose i stood amazed at the revelation of all this perfidy looking at miss moucher as she walked up and down the kitchen until she was out of breath when she sat upon the fender again and drying her face with her handkerchief shook her head for a long time without otherwise moving and without breaking silence my country rounds she added at length brought me to norwich mr copperfield the night before last what i happened to find there about their secret way of coming and going without you which was strange led to my suspecting something wrong i got into the coach from london last night as it came through norwich and was here this morning oh 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 too late poor little moucher turned so chilly after all her crying and fretting that she turned round on the fender putting her poor little wet feet in amongst the ashes to warm them and sat looking at the fire like a large doll i sat in a chair on the other side of the hearth lost in unhappy reflections and looking at the fire too and sometimes at her i must go she said at last rising as she spoke it's late you don't mistrust me meeting her sharp glance which was as sharp as ever when she asked me i could not on that short challenge answer no quite frankly come she said accepting the offer of my hand to help her over the fender and looking wistfully up into my face you know you wouldn't mistrust me if i was a full-sized woman i felt that there was much truth in this and i felt rather ashamed of myself you were a young man she said nodding take a word of advice even from freefoot nothing try not to associate bodily defects with mental my good friend except for a solid reason 
She had got over the fender now, and I had got over my suspicion. I told her that I believed she had given me a faithful account of herself, and that we had both been hapless instruments in designing hands. She thanked me, and said I was a good fellow. "'Now mind!' she exclaimed, turning back on her way to the door, and looking shrewdly at me with her forefinger up again. "'I have some reason to suspect, from what I have heard, my ears are always open, I can't afford to spare what powers I have, that they are gone abroad.' but if ever they return if ever any one of them returns while i'm alive i am more likely than another going about as i do to find it out soon whatever i know you shall know if ever i can do anything to serve the poor betrayed girl i will do it faithfully please heaven and littimer had better have a bloodhound at his back than little moucher i placed implicit faith in this last statement when i marked the look with which it was accompanied "'Trust me no more, but trust me no less, than you would trust a full-sized woman,' said the little creature, touching me appealingly on the wrist. "'If ever you see me again, unlike what I am now, and like what I was when you first saw me, observe what company I mean. Call to mind that I am a very helpless and defenceless little thing. Think of me at home with my brother, like myself, and my sister like myself, when my day's work is done. Perhaps you won't then be very hard upon me, or surprised if I can be distressed and serious.' Good night. I gave Miss Moucher my hand, with a very different opinion of her, from that which I had hitherto entertained, and opened the door to let her out. It was not a trifling business to get the great umbrella up, and properly balanced in her grasp, but at last I successfully accomplished this, and saw it go bobbing down the street through the rain, without the least appearance of having anybody underneath it, except when a heavier fall than usual from some overcharged water-spout sent it toppling over on one side, and discovered Miss Moucher struggling violently to get it right. After making one or two sallies to her relief, which were rendered futile by the umbrellas hopping on again, like an immense bird before I could reach it, I came in, went to bed, and slept till morning. In the morning I was joined by Mr. Peggotty and my old nurse, and we went at an early hour to the coach-office, where Mrs. Gummidge and Ham were waiting to take leave of us. "'Master Davy,' Ham whispered, drawing me aside, while Mr. Peggotty was stowing his bag among the luggage, "'his life is quite broken up. He don't know where he's going. He don't know what's afore him. He's bound upon a voyage that'll last on and off all the rest of his days. Take my word for it, unless he finds what he's a-seeking of. I'm sure you'll be a friend to a master, Davy. Trust me, I will indeed," said I, shaking hands with Ham earnestly. "Thank ye, thank ye very kind, sir. One thing further, I'm in good employ, you know, master Davy, and I ha'n't no way now of spending what it gets. Money's of no use to me no more, except to live. If you can lay it out for him, I shall do my work with a better heart. Though as to that, sir, and he spoke very steadily and mildly, you're not to think but I shall work at all times, like a man, and act the best that lays in my power. I told him I was well convinced of it, and I hinted that I hoped the time might even come when he would cease to lead the lonely life he naturally contemplated now. No, sir he said, shaking his head. All that's past and over with me, sir. No one can never fill the place that's empty. But you bear in mind about the money, as there's at all times some laying by for him. Reminding him of the fact that Mr. Peggotty derived a steady, though certainly a very moderate income from the bequest of his late brother-in-law, I promised to do so. We then took leave of each other. I cannot leave him, even now, without remembering with a pang, at once his modest fortitude and his great sorrow. 
as to mrs gummidge if i were to endeavour to describe how she ran down the street by the side of the coach seeing nothing but mr peggotty on the roof through the tears she tried to repress and dashing herself against the people who were coming in the opposite direction i should enter on a task of some difficulty therefore i had better leave her sitting on a baker's doorstep out of breath with no shape at all remaining in her bonnet and one of her shoes off lying on the pavement at a considerable distance when we got to our journey's end our first pursuit was to look about for a little lodging for peggotty where her brother could have a bed we were so fortunate as to find one of a very clean and cheap description over a chandler shop only two streets removed from me when we had engaged this domicile i bought some cold meat at an eating-house and took my fellow-travellers home to tea a proceeding i regret to state which did not meet with mrs crupp's approval but quite the contrary i ought to observe however in explanation of that lady's state of mind that she was much offended by peggotty's tucking up her window's gown before she had been ten minutes in the place and setting to work to dust my bedroom this mrs crupp regarded in the light of a liberty and a liberty she said was a thing she never allowed mr peggotty had made a communication to me on the way to london for which i was not unprepared it was that he proposed first seeing mrs steerforth as i felt bound to assist him in this and also to mediate between them with a view of sparing the mother's feelings as much as possible i wrote to her that night i told her as mildly as i could what his wrong was and what my own share in his injury i said he was a man in very common life but of a most gentle and upright character and that i ventured to express a hope that she would not refuse to see him in his heavy trouble i mentioned two o'clock in the afternoon as the hour of our coming and i sent the letter myself by the first coach in the morning at the appointed time we stood at the door the door of that house where i had been a few days since so happy where my youthful confidence and warmth of heart had been yielded up so freely which was closed against me henceforth which was now a waste a ruin no littimer appeared the pleasanter face which had replaced his on the occasion of my last visit answered to our summons and went before us to the drawing-room mrs steerforth was sitting there rosa dartle glided as we went in from another part of the room and stood behind her chair i saw directly in his mother's face that she knew from himself what he had done it was very pale and bore the traces of deeper emotion than my letter alone weakened by the doubts her fondness would have raised upon it would have been likely to create i thought her more like him than i had ever thought her and i felt rather than saw that the resemblance was not lost on my companion she sat upright in her armchair with a stately immovable passionless air that it seemed as if nothing could disturb she looked very steadfastly at mr peggotty when he stood before her and he looked quite as steadfastly at her rosa dartle's keen glance comprehended all of us for some moments not a word was spoken she motioned to mr peggotty to be seated he said in a low voice i shouldn't feel it natural ma'am to sit down in this house i'd sooner stand and this was succeeded by another silence which she broke thus i know with deep regret what has brought you here what do you want of me what do you ask me to do he put his hat under his arm and feeling in his breast for emily's letter took it out unfolded it and gave it to her please to read that ma'am that's my niece's hand she read it in the same stately and impassive way, untouched by its contents as far as I could see, and returned it to him. "'Unless he brings me back a lady,' said Mr. Peggotty, tracing out that part with his finger. 
I come to know, ma'am, whether he will keep his word.' "'No,' she returned. "'Why not?' said Mr. Peggotty. "'It is impossible. He would disgrace himself. You cannot fail to know that she is far below him.' "'Raise her up,' said Mr. Peggotty. "'She is uneducated and ignorant.' maybe she's not maybe she is said mr peggotty i think she's not ma'am but i'm no judge of them things teach her better since you oblige me to speak more plainly which i am very unwilling to do her humble connections would render such a thing impossible if nothing else did hark to this ma'am he returned slowly and quietly you know what it is to love your child so do i if she was a hundred times my child i couldn't love her more you do it know what it is to lose your child i do all the heaps of riches in the world would be now to me if they was mine to buy her back but save her from this disgrace and she shall never be disgraced by us not one of us that she's growed up among not one of us that's lived along with her and had her for their all in all these many year will ever look upon her pretty face again we'll be content to let her be we'll be content to think of her far off as if she were underneath another sun and sky we'll be content to trust to her husband to her little children perhaps and by the time when all of us shall be alike in quality afore our god the rugged eloquence with which she spoke was not devoid of all effect she still preserved her proud manner but there was a touch of softness in her voice as she answered i justify nothing i make no counter-accusations but i am sorry to repeat that it is impossible such a marriage would irretrievably blight my son's career and ruin his prospects nothing is more certain than that it can never take place and never will if there is any other compensation i am looking at the likeness of the face interrupted mr peggotty with a steady but a kindling eye that has looked at me in my home at my fireside in my boat where not smiling and friendly when it was so treacherous that i go half wild when i think of it if the likeness of that face don't turn to a burning fire at the thought of offering money to me for my child's blight and ruin it's as bad i do not know being a lady's but what it's worse she changed now in a moment an angry flush overspread her features and she said in an intolerant manner grasping the armchair tightly with her hands what compensation can you make to me for opening such a pit between me and my son what is your love to mine what is your separation to ours Miss Dartle softly touched her, and bent down her head to whisper, but she would not hear a word. "'No, Rosa, not a word. Let the man listen to what I say. My son, who has been the object of my life, to whom its every thought has been devoted, whom I have gratified from a child in every wish, from whom I have no separate existence since his birth, to take up in a moment with a miserable girl and avoid me, to repay my confidence with systematic deception for her sake, and quit me for her.' to set this wretched fancy against his mother's claims upon his love duty respect gratitude claims that every day and hour of his life should have strengthened into ties that nothing could be proof against is this no injury again rosa dartle tried to soothe her again ineffectually i say rosa not a word if he can stake his all upon the lightest object i shall stake my all upon a greater purpose let him go where he will with the means that my love has secured to him does he think to reduce me by long absence he knows his mother very little if he does let him put away his whim now and he is welcome back let him not put her away and he shall never come near me living or dying while i can raise my hand to make a sign against it unless being rid of her for ever he comes humbly to me and begs for my forgiveness 
this is my right this is the acknowledgment i will have this is the separation that there is between us and is this she added looking at her visitor with a proud intolerant air with which she had begun no injury while i heard and saw the mother as she said these words i seemed to hear and see the son defying them all that i had ever seen in him of an unyielding wilful spirit i saw in her all the understanding that i had now of his misdirected energy became an understanding of her character too and a perception that it was in its strongest springs the same she now observed to me aloud resuming her former restraint that it was useless to hear more or to say more and that she begged to put an end to the interview she rose with an air of dignity to leave the room when mr peggotty signified that it was needless don't fear me being any hindrance to you i have no more to say ma'am he remarked as he moved towards the door i come here with no hope and i take away no hope i have done what i thought should be done but i never looked for any good to come of my standing where i do this has been too evil a house for me and mine for me to be put in my right senses and expect it with this we departed leaving her standing by her elbow-chair a picture of a noble presence and a handsome face we had on our way out to cross a paved hall with glass sides and roof over which a vine was trained its leaves and shoots were green then and the day being sunny a pair of glass doors leading to the garden were thrown open rosa dartle entering this way with a noiseless step when we were close to them addressed herself to me you do well she said indeed to bring this fellow here such a concentration of rage and scorn as darkened her face and flashed in her jet-black eyes i could not have thought compressible even into that face the scar made by the hammer was as usual in this excited state of her features strongly marked when the throbbing i had seen before came into it as i looked at her she absolutely lifted up her hand and struck it this is a fellow she said to champion and bring here is he not you are a true man miss dartle i returned you are surely not so unjust as to condemn me why do you bring division between these two mad creatures she returned don't you know that they are both mad with their own self-will and pride is it my doing i returned is it your doing she retorted why do you bring this man here he's a deeply injured man miss dartle i replied you may not know it i know that james steerforth she said with her hand upon her bosom as if to prevent the storm that was raging there from being loud has a false corrupt heart and is a traitor but what need i know or care about this fellow and his common niece miss dartle i ventured you deepen the injury it is sufficient already i will only say at parting that you do him a great wrong i do him no wrong she returned they are a depraved worthless set i should have her whipped Mr. Peggotty passed on without a word, and went out at the door. "'Oh, shame, Miss Dartle, shame!' I said indignantly. "'How can you bear to trample on his undeserved affliction?' "'I would trample on them all,' she answered. "'I would have his house pulled down. I would have her branded on the face, dressed in rags, and cast out in the streets to starve. If I had the power to sit in judgment on her, I would see it done.' see it done i would do it i detest her if i ever could reproach her with her infamous condition i would go anywhere to do it if i could hunt her to the grave i would if there was any word of comfort that would be a solace to her in her dying hour and only i possessed it i wouldn't part with it for life itself 
the mere vehemence of her words can convey i am sensible but a weak impression of the passion by which she was possessed and which made itself articulate in her whole figure though her voice instead of being raised was lower than usual no description i could give of her would do justice to my recollection of her or to her entire deliverance of herself to anger i have seen passion in many forms but i have never seen it in such a form as that when i joined mr peggotty he was walking slowly and thoughtfully down the hill he told me as soon as i came up with him that having now discharged his mind of what he had proposed doing in london he meant to set out on his travels that night i asked him where he meant to go he only answered i'm a-going sir to seek my niece we went back to the little lodging over the chandler's shop and there i found an opportunity of repeating to peggotty what he had said to me she informed me in return that he had said the same thing to her that morning she knew no more than i did where he was going but she thought he had some project shaped in his mind i did not like to leave him under such circumstances and we all three dined together off a beefsteak pie which was one of the many good things for which peggotty was famous and which was curiously flavoured on this occasion i recollect well by a miscellaneous taste of tea coffee butter bacon cheese new loaves firewood candles and walnut ketchup continually ascending from the shop after dinner we sat for an hour or so near the window without talking much and then mr peggotty got up and brought his oilskin bag and his stout stick and laid them on the table he accepted from his sister's stock of ready money a small sum on account of his legacy barely enough i should have thought to keep him for a month he promised to communicate with me when anything befell him and he slung his bag about him took his hat and stick and bade us both good-bye all good attend you dear old woman he said embracing peggotty and you too master davy shaking hands with me i'm a-going to seek her far and wide if she should come home while i'm away but ah that ain't like to be or if i should bring her back my meaning is that she and me shall live and die where no one can reproach her if any hurt should come to me remember that the last words i left for her was my unchanged love is with my darling child and i forgive her he said this solemnly bareheaded then putting on his hat he went down the stairs and away we followed to the door it was a warm dusty evening just the time when in the great main thoroughfare out of which that byway turned there was a temporary lull in the eternal tread of feet upon the pavement and a strong red sunshine he turned alone at the corner of our shady street into a glow of light in which we lost him rarely did that hour of evening come rarely did i wake up at night rarely did i look up at the moon or stars or watch the falling rain or hear the wind but i thought of his solitary figure toiling along poor pilgrim and recalled the words i'm a-going to seek her fur and wide if any hurt should come to me remember that the last words i left for her was my unchanged love is with my darling child and i forgive her End of chapter thirty two Chapter thirty three of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Kynes. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty three. Blissful. All this time I had gone on loving Dora harder than ever. 
her idea was my refuge in disappointment and distress and made some amends to me even for the loss of my friend the more i pitied myself or pitied others the more i sought for consolation in the image of dora the greater the accumulation of deceit and trouble in the world the brighter and the purer shone the star of dora high above the world i don't think i had any definite idea where dora came from or in what degree she was related to a higher order of beings but i am quite sure i should have scouted the notion of her being simply human like any other young lady with indignation and contempt if i may so express it i was steeped in dora i was not merely over head and ears in love with dora but i was saturated through and through enough love might have been wrung out of me metaphorically speaking to drown anybody in and yet there would have remained enough within me and all over me to pervade my entire existence the first thing i did on my own account when i came back was to take a night walk to norwood and like the subject of a venerable riddle of my childhood to go round and round the house without ever touching the house thinking about dora i believe the theme of this incomprehensible conundrum was the moon no matter what it was i the moonstruck slave of dora perambulated round and round the house and garden for two hours looking through crevices in the palings getting my chin by dint of violent exertion above the rusty nails on the top blowing kisses at the lights in the windows and romantically calling on the night at intervals to shield my dora i don't know exactly what from i suppose from fire perhaps from mice to which she had a great objection my love was so much in my mind, and it was so natural to me to confide in Peggotty, when I found her again by my side of an evening with the old set of industrial implements, busily making the tour of my wardrobe, that I imparted to her, in a sufficiently roundabout way, my great secret. Peggotty was strongly interested, but I could not get her into my view of the case at all. She was audaciously prejudiced in my favour, and quite unable to understand why I should have any misgivings, or be low-spirited about it the young lady might think herself well off she observed to have such a bow and as to her pa she said what did the gentleman expect for gracious sake i observed however that mr spenlow's proctorial gown and stiff cravat took peggotty down a little and inspired her with a greater reverence for the man who was gradually becoming more and more etherealized in my eyes every day and about whom a reflected radiance seemed to me to beam when he sat erect in court among his papers like a little lighthouse in a sea of stationery and by the by it used to be uncommonly strange to me to consider i remember as i sat in court too how those dim old judges and doctors wouldn't have cared for dora if they had known her how they wouldn't have gone out of their senses with rapture if marriage with dora had been proposed to them how dora might have sung and played upon that glorified guitar until she led me to the verge of madness yet not have tempted one of those slow-goers an inch out of his road i despise them to a man frozen out old gardeners in the flower-beds of the heart i took a personal offence against them all the bench was nothing to me but an insensible blunderer the bar had no more tenderness or poetry in it than the bar of a public-house taking the management of peggotty's affairs into my own hands with no little pride i proved the will and came to a settlement with the legacy duty office and took her to the bank and soon got everything into an orderly train we varied the legal character of these proceedings by going to see some perspiring waxwork in fleet street melted i should hope these twenty years and by visiting miss linwood's exhibition which i remember as a mausoleum of needlework favourable to self-examination and repentance 
and by inspecting the tower of london and going to the top of st paul's all these wonders afforded peggotty as much pleasure as she was able to enjoy under existing circumstances except i think st paul's which from her long attachment to her work-box became a rival of the picture on the lid and was in some particulars vanquished she considered by that work of art Peggotty's business, which was what we used to call common form business in the commons, and very light and lucrative the common form business was, being settled, I took her down to the office one morning to pay her bill. Mr. Spenlow had stepped out, old Tiffy said, to get a gentleman sworn for a marriage licence, but as I knew he would be back directly, our place lying close to the surrogates and to the vicar-general's office too, I told Peggotty to wait. We were a little like undertakers in the commons, as regarded probate transactions, generally making it a rule to look more or less cut up when we had to deal with clients in mourning. In a similar feeling of delicacy we were always blithe and light-hearted with the licensed clients. Therefore I hinted to Peggotty that she would find Mr. Spenlow much recovered from the shock of Mr. Barkis's decease, and indeed he came in like a bridegroom but neither peggotty nor i had eyes for him when we saw in company with him mr murdstone he was very little changed his hair looked as thick and was certainly as black as ever and his glance was as little to be trusted as of old ah copperfield said mr spenlow you know this gentleman i believe i made my gentleman a distant bow and peggotty barely recognized him he was at first somewhat disconcerted to meet us two together but quickly decided what to do and came up to me i hope he said that you are doing well it can hardly be interesting to you said i yes if you wish to know we looked at each other and he addressed himself to peggotty and you he said i am sorry to observe that you have lost your husband it's not the first loss i have had in my life mr murdstone replied peggotty trembling from head to foot i am glad to hope that there is nobody to blame for this one nobody to answer for it ah said he that's a comfortable reflection you have done your duty i have not worn anybody's life away said peggotty i am thankful to think no mr murdstone i have not worried and frightened any sweet creature to an early grave he eyed her gloomily, remorsefully, I thought, for an instant, and said, turning his head towards me, but looking at my feet instead of my face, "'We are not likely to encounter soon again. A source of satisfaction to us both, no doubt, for such meetings as this can never be agreeable. I do not expect that you, who always rebelled against my just authority, exerted for your benefit and reformation, should owe me any good will now. There is an antipathy between us.' "'An old one, I believe,' said I, interrupting him. He smiled, and shot as evil a glance at me as could come from his dark eyes. "'It rankled in your baby breast,' he said. "'It embittered the life of your poor mother. You are right. I hope you may do better yet. I hope you may correct yourself.' Here he ended the dialogue, which had been carried on in a low voice in a corner of the outer office, by passing into Mr. Spenlow's room, and saying aloud in his smoothest manner, gentlemen of mr spenlow's profession are accustomed to family differences and know how complicated and difficult they always are with that he paid the money for his license and receiving it neatly folded from mr spenlow together with a shake of his hand and a polite wish for his happiness and the ladies went out of the office i might have had more difficulty in constraining myself to be silent under his words if i had had less difficulty in impressing upon peggotty who was only angry on my account good creature that we were not in a place for recrimination and that i besought her to hold her peace 
She was so unusually roused that I was glad to compound for an affectionate hug, elicited by this revival in her mind of her old injuries, and to make the best I could of it before Mr. Spenlow and the clerks. Mr. Spenlow did not appear to know what the connection between Mr. Murdstone and myself was, which I was glad of, for I could not bear to acknowledge him, even in my own breast, remembering what I did of the history of my poor mother. Mr. Spenlow seemed to think, if he thought anything about the matter, that my aunt was the leader of the state party in our family, and that there was a rebel party commanded by someone else. So I gathered at last from what he said, while we were waiting for Mr. Tiffy to make out Peggotty's bill of costs. "'Miss Trotwood,' he remarked, "'is very firm, no doubt, and not likely to give way to opposition. I have an admiration for her character, and I may congratulate you, Copperfield, on being on the right side.' differences between relations are much to be deplored but they are extremely general and the great thing is to be on the right side meaning i take it on the side of the moneyed interest rather a good marriage this i believe said mr spenlow i explained that i knew nothing about it indeed he said speaking from the few words mr murdstone dropped as a man frequently does on these occasions and from what miss murdstone let fall i should say it was rather a good marriage do you mean that there is money sir I asked. Yes, said Mr. Spenlow, I understand there's money. Beauty too, I am told. Indeed, is his new wife young? Just of age, said Mr. Spenlow, so lately that I should think they have been waiting for that. Lord deliverer, said Peggotty, so very emphatically and unexpectedly that we were all three discomposed, until Tiffy came in with the bill. Old Tiffy soon appeared, however, and handed it to Mr. Spenlow to look over. Mr. Spenlow, settling his chin in his cravat and rubbing it softly, went over the items with a deprecatory air, as if it were all Jorkins's doing, and handed it back to Tiffy with a bland sigh. "'Yes,' he said, "'that's right, quite right. I should have been extremely happy, Copperfield, to have limited these charges to the actual expenditure out of pocket, but it is an irksome incident in my professional life that I am not at liberty to consult my own wishes. I have a partner, Mr. Jorkins.' As he said this with a gentle melancholy, which was the next thing to making no charge at all, I expressed my acknowledgments on Peggotty's behalf, and paid Tiffy in banknotes. Peggotty then retired to her lodgings, and Mr. Spenlow and I went into court, where we had a divorce suit coming on, under an ingenious little statute, repealed now, I believe, but in virtue of which I have seen several marriages annulled, of which the merits were these. The husband, whose name was Thomas Benjamin, had taken out his marriage license as Thomas only, suppressing the Benjamin in case he should not find himself as comfortable as he expected. Not finding himself as comfortable as he expected, or being a little fatigued with his wife, poor fellow, he now came forward by a friend, after being married a year or two, and declared that his name was Thomas Benjamin, and therefore he was not married at all, which the court confirmed to his great satisfaction. I must say that I had my doubts about the strict justice of this, and was not even frightened out of them by the bushel of wheat which reconciles all anomalies. But Mr. Spenlow argued the matter with me. He said, Look at the world. There was good and evil in that. Look at the ecclesiastical law. There was good and evil in that. It was all part of a system. Very good. There you were. I had not the hardihood to suggest to Dora's father that possibly we might even improve the world a little if we got up early in the morning and took off our coats to the work, but I confessed that I thought we might improve the commons. Mr. Spenlow replied that he would particularly advise me to dismiss that idea from my mind as not being worthy of my gentlemanly character, 
but that he would be glad to hear from me of what improvement I thought the Commons susceptible. Taking that part of the Commons which happened to be nearest to us, for our man was unmarried by this time and we were out of court, and strolling past the prerogative office, I submitted that I thought the prerogative office rather a queerly managed institution. Mr. Spenlow inquired in what respect. I replied, with all due deference to his experience, but with more deference, I am afraid, to his being Dora's father, that perhaps it was a little nonsensical that the registry of that court, containing the original wills of all persons leaving effects within the immense province of Canterbury for three whole centuries, should be an accidental building, never designed for the purpose, leased by the registrars for their own private emolument, unsafe, not even ascertained to be fireproof, choked with the important documents it held, and positively from the to the basement a mercenary speculation of the registrars who took great fees from the public and crammed the public's wills away anyhow and anywhere having no other object than to get rid of them cheaply that perhaps it was a little unreasonable that these registrars in the receipt of profits amounting to eight or nine thousand pounds a year to say nothing of the profits of the deputy registrars and clerks of seats should not be obliged to spend a little of that money in finding a reasonably safe place for the important documents which all classes of people were compelled to hand over to them whether they would or no that perhaps it was a little unjust that all the great offices in this great office should be magnificent sinecures while the unfortunate working clerks in the old dark room upstairs were the worst rewarded and the least considered men doing important services in london that perhaps it was a little indecent that the principal registrar of all whose duty it was to find the public constantly resorting to this place all needful accommodation should be an enormous sinecurist in virtue of that post and might be besides a clergyman a pluralist a holder of a staff in a cathedral and what not while the public was put to the inconvenience of which we have a specimen every afternoon when the office was busy, and which we knew to be quite monstrous, that perhaps, in short, this prerogative office of the Diocese of Canterbury was altogether such a pestilent job, and such a pernicious absurdity, that but for its being squeezed away in a corner of St. Paul's churchyard, which few people knew, it must have been turned completely inside out and upside down long ago. Mr. Spenlow smiled as I became modestly warm on the subject, and then argued this question with me as he had argued the other. He said, what was it, after all? It was a question of feeling. If the public felt that their wills were in safe-keeping, and took it for granted that the office was not to be made better, who was the worse for it? Nobody. Who was the better for it? All the sinecurists. Very well then the good predominated it might not be a perfect system nothing was perfect but what he objected to was the insertion of the wedge under the prerogative office the country had been glorious insert the wedge into the prerogative office and the country would cease to be glorious he considered it the principle of a gentleman to take things as he found them and he had no doubt the prerogative office would last our time i defer to his opinion though i had great doubts of it myself I find he was right, however, for it has not only lasted to the present moment, but has done so in the teeth of a great parliamentary report made, not too willingly, eighteen years ago, when all these objections of mine were set forth in detail, and when the existing storage for wills was described as equal to the accumulation of only two and a half years more. What they have done with them since, whether they have lost many, or whether they sell any, now and then, to the butter-shops, I don't know. I am glad mine is not there, and I hope it may not go there yet a while. I have set all this down in my present blissful chapter, because here it comes into its natural place. 
Mr. Spenlow and I, falling into this conversation, prolonged it and our saunter to and fro until we diverged into general topics. And so it came about, in the end, that Mr. Spenlow told me that this day week was Dora's birthday, and he would be glad if I would come down and join a little picnic on the occasion. I went out of my senses immediately, became a mere driveller next day, on receipt of a little lace-edged sheet of note-paper, favoured by papa to remind, and passed the intervening period in a state of dotage. I think I committed every possible absurdity in the way of preparation for this blessed event. I turn hot when I remember the cravat I bought. My boots might be placed in any collection of instruments of torture. I provided, and sent down by the Norwood coach the night before, a delicate little hamper, amounting in itself, I thought, almost to a declaration. There were crackers in it with the tenderest mottoes that could be got for money. At six in the morning I was in Covent Garden Market, buying a bouquet for Dora. At ten I was on horseback, I hired a gallant grey for the occasion, with a bouquet in my hat to keep it fresh, trotting down to Norwood. I suppose that when I saw Dora in the garden and pretended not to see her, and rode past the house pretending to be anxiously looking for it, I committed two small fooleries which other young gentlemen in my circumstances might have committed, because they came so very natural to me. But, oh, when I did find the house, and did dismount at the garden gate, and drag those stony-hearted boots across the lawn to Dora, sitting on a garden seat under a lilac tree, what a spectacle she was, upon that beautiful morning, among the butterflies with a white chip bonnet and a dress of celestial blue. There was a young lady with her, comparatively stricken in years, almost twenty, I should say. Her name was Miss Mills, and Dora called her Julia. She was the bosom friend of Dora, the happy Miss Mills. Jip was there, and Jip would bark at me again. When I presented my bouquet, he gnashed his teeth with jealousy. Well he might, if he had the least idea how I adored his mistress. Well he might. "'Oh, thank you, Mr. Copperfield. What dear flowers!' said Dora. I had had an intention of saying, and had been studying the best form of words for three miles, that I thought them beautiful before I saw them so near her. But I couldn't manage it. She was too bewildering. To see her lay the flowers against her little dimpled chin was to lose all presence of mind and power of language in a feeble ecstasy. I wonder I didn't say, kill me, if you have a heart, Miss Mills. Let me die here. Then Dora held my flowers to Jip to smell. Then Jip growled and wouldn't smell them. Then Dora laughed and held them a little closer to Jip to make him. Then Jip laid hold of a bit of geranium with his teeth and worried imaginary cats in it. Then Dora beat him and pouted and said, My poor beautiful flowers! As compassionately I thought as if Jip had laid hold of me. I wished he had. You'll be glad to hear, Mr. Copperfield, said Dora, that that cross Miss Murdstone is not here. She has gone to her brother's marriage, and will be away at least three weeks. Isn't that delightful? I said I was sure it must be delightful to her, and all that was delightful to her was delightful to me. Miss Mills, with an air of superior wisdom and benevolence, smiled upon us. She's the most disagreeable thing I ever saw, said Dora. You can't believe how ill-tempered and shocking she is, Julia. "'Yes, I can, my dear,' said Julia. "'You can, perhaps, love,' returned Dora, with her hand on Julia's. "'Forgive my not accepting you, my dear, at first. I learned from this that Miss Mills had had her trials in the course of a chequered existence, and that to these, perhaps, I might refer that wise benignity of manner which I had already noticed. 
I found in the course of the day that this was the case, Miss Mills having been unhappy in a misplaced affection, and being understood to have retired from the world on her awful stock of experience, but still to take a calm interest in the unblighted hopes and loves of youth. But now Mr. Spenlow came out of the house, and Dora went to him, saying, "'Look, papa, what beautiful flowers!' And Miss Mills smiled thoughtfully, as who should say, "'Ye mayflies, enjoy your brief existence in the bright morning of life.' And we all walked from the lawn towards the carriage, which was getting ready. "'I shall never have such a ride again. I have never had such another.' There were only those three, their hamper, my hamper, and the guitar-case in the phaeton, and, of course, the phaeton was open, and I rode behind it, and Dora sat with her back to the horses, looking towards me. She kept the bouquet close to her on the cushion, and wouldn't allow Jip to sit on that side of her at all, for fear he should crush it. She often carried it in her hand, often refreshed herself with its fragrance. Our eyes at those times often met, and my great astonishment is that I didn't go over the head of my gallant grey into the carriage. There was dust, I believe. There was a good deal of dust, I believe. I have a faint impression that Mr. Spenlow remonstrated with me for riding in it, but I knew none. I was sensible of a mist of love and beauty about Dora, but of nothing else. He stood up sometimes and asked me what I thought of the prospect. I said it was delightful, and I dare say it was, but it was all Dora to me. The sun shone Dora, and the birds sang Dora. The south wind blew Dora, and the wild flowers in the hedges were all Dora's to a bud. My comfort is Miss Mills understood me. Miss Mills alone could enter into my feelings thoroughly. I don't know how long we were going, and to this hour I know as little where we went. Perhaps it was near Guildford. Perhaps some Arabian night magician opened up the whole place for a day, and shut it up for ever when we came away. It was a green spot on a hill carpeted with soft turf. There were shady trees and heather, and as far as the eye could see a rich landscape. It was a trying thing to find people there waiting for us, and my jealousy, even of the ladies, knew no bounds. But all of my own sex, especially one impostor, three or four years my elder, with a red whisker, on which he established an amount of presumption not to be endured, were my mortal foes. We all unpacked our baskets and employed ourselves in getting dinner ready. Red Whisker pretended he could make a salad, which I don't believe, and abjured himself on public notice. Some of the young ladies washed the lettuce for him and sliced them under his directions. Dora was among these, and I felt that fate had pitted me against this man, and one of us must fall. Red Whisker made his salad. I wonder how they could eat it. Nothing could have induced me to touch it and voted himself into the charge of the wine-cellar, which he constructed, being an ingenious beast, in the hollow of a tree-trunk. By and by I saw him, with the majority of a lobster on his plate, eating his dinner at the feet of Dora. I have but an indistinct idea of what happened for some time after this baleful object presented itself to my view. I was very merry, I know, but it was hollow merriment. I attached myself to a young creature in pink, with little eyes, and flirted with her desperately. She received my attentions with favour, but whether on my account solely, or because she had any designs on red whisker, I can't say. Dora's health was drunk. When I drank it, I affected to interrupt my conversation for that purpose, and to resume it immediately afterwards. I caught Dora's eye as I bowed to her, and I thought it looked appealing. But it looked at me over the head of red whisker, and I was adamant. The young creature in pink had a mother in green, and I rather think the latter separated us from motives of policy. 
Howbeit, there was a general breaking up of the party, while the remnants of the dinner were being put away, and I strolled off by myself among the trees in a raging and remorseful state. I was debating whether I should pretend that I was not well and fly, I don't know where, upon my gallant grey, when Dora and Miss Mills met me. "'Mr. Copperfield,' said Miss Mills, "'you are dull.' I begged her pardon, not at all. "'And Dora,' said Miss Mills, "'you are dull.' oh dear no not in the least mr copperfield and dora said miss mills with an almost venerable air enough of this do not allow a trivial misunderstanding to wither the blossoms of spring which once put forth and blighted cannot be renewed i speak said miss mills from experience of the past the remote irrevocable past the gushing fountains which sparkle in the sun must not be stopped in mere caprice the oasis in the desert of sahara must not be plucked up idly I hardly knew what I did. I was burning all over to that extraordinary extent, but I took Dora's little hand and kissed it, and she let me. I kissed Miss Mills's hand, and we all seemed, to my thinking, to go straight up to the seventh heaven. We did not come down again. We stayed up there all evening. At first we strayed to and fro among the trees, I with Dora's shy arm drawn through mine, and heaven knows, folly as it all was, it would have been a happy fate to have been struck immortal with those foolish feelings, and have stayed among the trees for ever. But much too soon we heard the others laughing and talking and calling, Where's Dora? So we went back, and they wanted Dora to sing. Red Whisker would have got the guitar-case out of the carriage, but Dora told him nobody knew where it was but I, so Red Whisker was done for in a moment and I got it, and I unlocked it, and I took the guitar out, and I sat by her, and I held her handkerchief and gloves, and I drank in every note of her dear voice, and she sang to me, who loved her, and all the others might applaud as much as they liked, but they had nothing to do with it. I was intoxicated with joy. I was afraid it was too happy to be real, and that I should wake in Buckingham Street presently, and hear Mrs. Crupp clinking the teacups in getting breakfast ready but dora sang and the others sang and miss mills sang about the slumbering echoes in the caverns of memory as if she were a hundred years old and the evening came on and we had tea with a little kettle boiling gypsy fashion and i was still as happy as ever i was happier than ever when the party broke up and the other people defeated red whisker and all went their several ways and we went ours through the still evening and the dying light with sweet scents rising up around us mr spenlow being a little drowsy after the champagne honour to the soil that grew the grape to the grape that made the wine to the sun that ripened it and to the merchant who adulterated it and being fast asleep in a corner of the carriage i rode up by the side and talked to dora she admired my horse and patted him oh what a dear little hand it looked upon a horse and her shawl would not keep right and now and then i drew it round her with my arm and i even fancied that jip began to see how it was and to understand that he must make up his mind to be friends with me that sagacious miss mills too that amiable though quite used-up recluse that little patriarch of something less than twenty who had done with the world and mustn't on any account have the slumbering echoes in the caverns of memory awakened what a kind thing she did mr copperfield said miss mills come to this side of the carriage a moment if you can spare a moment i want to speak to you behold me on my gallant grey bending at the side of miss mills with my hand on the carriage door dora is coming to stay with me she's coming home with me the day after to-morrow if you would like to call i am sure papa would be happy to see you
what could i do but invoke a silent blessing on miss mills's head and store miss mills's address in the securest corner of my memory what could i do but tell miss mills with grateful looks and fervent words how much i appreciated her good offices and what an inestimable value i set upon her friendship then miss mills benignantly dismissed me saying go back to dora and i went and dora leaned out of the carriage to talk to me and we talked all the rest of the way and i rode my gallant grey so close to the wheel that i grazed his near foreleg against it and took the bark off as his owner told me to the tune of three pounds seven which i paid and thought extremely cheap for so much joy what time miss mills sat looking at the moon murmuring verses and recalling i suppose the ancient days when she and earth had anything in common norwood was many miles too near and we reached it many hours too soon but mr spenlow came to himself a little short of it and said you must come in copperfield and rest and i consenting we had sandwiches and wine and water in the light room dora blushing looked so lovely that i could not tear myself away but sat there staring in a dream until the snoring of mr spenlow inspired me with sufficient consciousness to take my leave so we parted i riding all the way to london with the farewell touches of dora's hand still light on mine recalling every incident and word ten thousand times lying down on my own bed at last as enraptured a young noodle as ever was carried out of his five wits by love when i awoke next morning i was resolute to declare my passion to dora and know my fate happiness or misery was now the question there was no other question that i knew of in the world and only dora could give the answer to it i passed three days in a luxury of wretchedness torturing myself by putting every conceivable variety of discouraging construction on all that ever had taken place between dora and me at last arrayed for the purpose at a vast expense i went to miss mills's fraught with a declaration how many times i went up and down the street and round the square painfully aware of being a much better answer to the old riddle than the original one before i could persuade myself to go up the steps and knock is no matter now even when at last i had knocked and was waiting at the door i had some flurried thought of asking if that were mr blackboy's in imitation of poor barkis begging pardon and retreating but i kept my ground mr mills was not at home i did not expect he would be nobody wanted him miss mills was at home miss mills would do i was shown into a room upstairs where miss mills and dora were jip was there miss mills was copying music i recollect it was a new song called affections dirge and dora was painting flowers what were my feelings when i recognised my own flowers the identical covent garden market purchase i cannot say that they were very like or that they particularly resembled any flowers that ever came under my observation but i knew from the paper around them which was accurately copied what the composition was miss mills was very glad to see me and very sorry her papa was not at home though i thought we all bore that with fortitude miss mills was conversational for a few minutes and then laying down her pen upon affection's dirge got up and left the room i began to think i would put it off till to-morrow i hope your poor horse was not tired when he got home that night said dora lifting up her beautiful eyes it was a long way for him i began to think i would do it to-day it was a long way for him i said for he had nothing to uphold him on the journey wasn't he fed poor thing asked dora i began to think i would put it off till to-morrow 
"'Yes,' I said, "'he was well taken care of. I mean, he had not the unutterable happiness that I had in being so near you.' Dora bent her head over her drawing and said, after a little while, I sat in the interval in a burning fever and with my legs in a very rigid state. You didn't seem to be sensible of that happiness yourself at one time of the day. I saw now that I was in for it, and that it must be done on the spot. You didn't care for that happiness in the least, said Dora, slightly raising her eyebrow and shaking her head, when you were sitting by Miss Kit. Kit, I should observe, was the name of the creature in pink with the little eyes. Though certainly I don't know why you should said dora or why you should call it a happiness at all but of course you don't mean what you say and i am sure no one doubts your being at liberty to do whatever you like jip you naughty boy come here i don't know how i did it i did it in a moment i intercepted jip i had dora in my arms i was full of eloquence i never stopped for a word i told her how i loved her i told her i should die without her i told her that i idolized and worshipped her jip barked madly all the time when Dora hung her head and cried and trembled, my eloquence increased so much the more. If she would like me to die for her, she had but to say the word, and I was ready. Life without Dora's love was not a thing to have on any terms. I couldn't bear it, and I wouldn't. I had loved her every minute, day and night, since I first saw her. I loved her at that minute to distraction. I would always love her every minute to distraction. Lovers had loved before, and lovers would love again, but no lover had ever loved, might, could, would, or should ever love as I loved Dora. The more I raved, the more Jip barked. Each of us, in his own way, got more mad every moment. Well, well, Dora and I were sitting on the sofa by and by, quiet enough, and Jip was lying in her lap, winking peacefully at me. It was off my mind. I was in a state of perfect rapture. Dora and I were engaged. I suppose we had some notion that this was to end in marriage. We must have had some, because Dora stipulated that we were never to be married without her papa's consent. But in our youthful ecstasy I don't think that we really looked before us or behind us, or had any aspiration beyond the ignorant present. We were to keep our secret from Mr. Spenlow, but I am sure the idea never entered my head then that there was anything dishonourable in that. Miss Mills was more than usually pensive when Dora, going to find her, brought her back, I apprehend because there was a tendency in what had passed to awaken the slumbering echoes in the caverns of memory. But she gave us her blessing, and the assurance of her lasting friendship, and spoke to us generally, as became a voice from the cloister. What an idle time it was! What an insubstantial, happy, foolish time it was! When I measured Dora's finger for a ring that was to be made of forget-me-nots, and when the jeweller, to whom I took the measure, found me out and laughed over his order-book, and charged me anything he liked for the pretty little toy, with its blue stones, so associated in my remembrance with Dora's hand, that yesterday, when I saw such another by chance on the finger of my own daughter, there was a momentary stirring in my heart like pain. When I walked about, exalted with my secret, and full of my own interests, and felt the dignity of loving Dora, and of being beloved, so much, that if I had walked on air I could not have been more above the people not so situated, who were creeping on the earth. When we had those meetings in the garden of the square, and sat within the dingy summer-house, so happy that I love the London sparrows to this hour for nothing else, and see the plumage of the tropics in their smoky feathers. 
when we had our first great quarrel within a week of our betrothal and when dora sent me back the ring enclosed in a despairing cocked hat note wherein she used the terrible expression that our love had begun in folly and ended in madness which dreadful words occasioned me to tear my hair and cry that all was over when under cover of the night i flew to miss mills whom i saw by stealth in the back kitchen where there was a mangle and implored miss mills to interpose between us and avert insanity when miss mills undertook the office and returned with dora exhorting us from the pulpit of her own bitter youth to mutual concession and the avoidance of the desert of sahara when we cried and made it up and were so blessed again that the back kitchen mangle and all changed to love's own temple where we arranged a plan of correspondence through miss mills always to comprehend at least one letter on each side every day what an idle time what an insubstantial happy foolish time of all the times of mind that time has in its grip there is none that in one retrospect i can smile at half so much and think of half so tenderly End of chapter thirty three Chapter thirty four of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty four. My aunt astonishes me. I wrote to Agnes as soon as Dora and I were engaged. I wrote her a long letter in which I tried to make her comprehend how blessed I was and what a darling Dora was. I entreated Agnes not to regard this as a thoughtless passion which could ever yield to any other, or have the least resemblance to the boyish fancies that we used to joke about. I assured her that its profundity was quite unfathomable, and expressed my belief that nothing like it had ever been known somehow as i wrote to agnes on a fine evening by my open window and the remembrance of her clear calm eyes and gentle face came stealing over me it shed such a peaceful influence upon the hurry and agitation in which i had been living lately and of which my very happiness partook in some degree that it soothed me into tears I remember I sat resting my head upon my hand when the letter was half done, cherishing a general fancy as if Agnes were one of the elements of my natural home, as if in the retirement of the house made almost sacred to me by her presence, Dora and I must be happier than anywhere, as if in love, joy, sorrow, hope, or disappointment, in all emotions, my heart turned naturally there, and found its refuge and best friend. Of Steerforth I said nothing. I only told her there had been sad grief at Yarmouth on account of Emily's flight, and that on me it made a double wound by reason of the circumstances attending it. I knew how quick she always was to divine the truth, and that she would never be the first to breathe his name. To this letter I received an answer by return of post. As I read it I seemed to hear Agnes speaking to me. It was like her cordial voice in my ears. What can I say more? While I had been away from home lately, Traddles had called twice or thrice. Finding Peggotty within, and being informed by Peggotty, who always volunteered that information to whomsoever would receive it, that she was my old nurse, he had established a good-humoured acquaintance with her, and had stayed to have a little chat with her about me. So Peggotty said, but I am afraid the chat was all on her own side, and of immoderate length, as she was very difficult indeed to stop, God bless her, when she had me for her theme. This reminds me, not only that I expected Traddles on a certain afternoon of his own appointing, which was now come, 
but that mrs crupp had resigned everything appertaining to her office the salary excepted until peggotty should cease to present herself mrs crupp after holding diverse conversations respecting peggotty in a very high-pitched voice on the staircase with some invisible familiar it would appear for corporeally speaking she was quite alone at those times addressed a letter to me developing her views beginning it with that statement of universal application which fitted every occurrence of her life, namely, that she was a mother herself. She went on to inform me that she had once seen very different days, but that at all periods of her existence she had had a constitutional objection to spies, intruders, and informers. She named no names, she said. Let them the cap fitted wear it. But spies, intruders, and informers, especially in widders' weeds, this clause was underlined, she had ever accustomed herself to look down upon. If a gentleman was the victim of spies, intruders, and informers, but still naming no names, that was his own pleasure. He had a right to please himself, so let him do. All that she, Mrs. Crupp, stipulated for was that she should not be brought in contract with such persons therefore she begged to be excused from any further attendance on the top set until things were as they formerly was and as they could be wished to be and further mentioned that her little book would be found on the breakfast-table every saturday morning when she requested an immediate settlement of the same with the benevolent view of saving trouble and an ill convenience to all parties after this mrs crupp confined herself to making pitfalls on the stairs principally with pitchers and endeavouring to delude peggotty into breaking her legs i found it rather harassing to live in this state of siege but was too much afraid of mrs crupp to see any way out of it my dear copperfield cried traddles punctually appearing at my door in spite of all these obstacles how do you do my dear traddles said i i am delighted to see you at last and very sorry not to have been home before but i had been so much engaged yes yes i know said traddles of course yours lives in london i think what did you say she excuse me miss d you know said traddles colouring in his great delicacy lives in london i believe oh yes near london mine perhaps you recollect said traddles with a serious look lives down in devonshire one of ten consequently i am not so much engaged as you in that sense i wonder you can bear i returned to see her so seldom ha said traddles thoughtfully it does seem a wonder i suppose it is copperfield because there is no help for it i suppose so i replied with a smile and not without a blush and because you have so much constancy and patience traddles dear me said traddles considering about it do i strike you in that way copperfield really i didn't know that i had but she is such an extraordinarily dear girl herself that it's possible she may have imparted something of those virtues to me now you mention it copperfield i shouldn't wonder at all i assure you she is always forgetting herself and taking care of the other nine is she the eldest i inquired oh dear no said traddles the eldest is a beauty he saw, I suppose, that I could not help smiling at the simplicity of this reply, and added, with a smile upon his own ingenuous face, Not, of course, but that my Sophie, pretty name Copperfield, I always think. Very pretty, said I. Not, of course, but that Sophie is beautiful, too, in my eyes, and would be one of the dearest girls that ever was in anybody's eyes, I should think. But when I say the eldest is a beauty, I mean she really is a... He seemed to be describing clouds about himself with both hands. "'Splendid, you know,' said Traddles energetically. 
"'Indeed,' said I. "'Oh, I assure you,' said Traddles, "'something very uncommon, indeed.' then you know being formed for society and admiration and not being able to enjoy much of it in consequence of their limited means she naturally gets a little irritable and exacting sometimes sophy puts her in good humour is sophy the youngest i hazarded oh dear no said traddles stroking his chin the two youngest are only nine and ten sophy educates them the second daughter perhaps i hazarded no said traddles sarah's the second sarah has something the matter with her spine poor girl the malady will wear out by and by the doctors say but in the meantime she has to lie down for a twelvemonth sophy nurses her sophy's the fourth is the mother living i inquired oh yes said traddles she is alive she is a very superior woman indeed but the damp country is not adapted to her constitution and in fact she has lost the use of her limbs dear me said i very sad is it not returned traddles but in a merely domestic view it is not so bad as it might be because sophy takes her place she is quite as much a mother to her mother as she is to the other nine i felt the greatest admiration for the virtues of this young lady and honestly with the view of doing my best to prevent the good nature of traddles from being imposed upon to the detriment of their joint prospects in life inquired how mr micawber was he's quite well copperfield thank you said traddles i'm not living with him at present no no you see the truth is said traddles in a whisper he had changed his name to mortimer in consequence of his temporary embarrassments and he don't come out till after dark and then in spectacles there was an execution put into our house for rent mrs micawber was in such a dreadful state that i really couldn't resist giving my name to that second bill we spoke of here you may imagine how delightful it was to my feelings copperfield to see the matter settled with it and mrs micawber recover her spirits hm i said not that her happiness was of long duration pursued traddles for unfortunately within a week another execution came it broke up the establishment i have been living in a furnished apartment since then and the mortimers have been very private indeed i hope you won't think it selfish copperfield if i mention that the broker carried off my little round table with the marble top and sophy's flower-pot and stand what a hard thing i exclaimed indignantly it was a it was a pull said traddles with his usual wince at the expression i don't mention it reproachfully however but with a motive the fact is copperfield i was unable to repurchase them at the time of their seizure in the first place because the broker having an idea that i wanted them ran the price up to an extravagant extent and in the second place because i hadn't any money now i have kept my eye since upon the broker's shop said traddles with a great enjoyment of his mystery which is up at the top of tottenham court road and at last to-day i find them put out for sale i have only noticed them from over the way because if the broker saw me bless you he'd ask any price for them what has occurred to me having now the money is that perhaps you wouldn't object to ask that good nurse of yours to come with me to the shop i can show it her from around the corner of the next street and make the best bargain for them as if they were for herself that she can the delight with which traddles propounded this plan to me and the sense he had of its uncommon artfulness are among the freshest things in my remembrance i told him that my old nurse would be delighted to assist him and that we would all three take the field together but on one condition that condition was that he should make a solemn resolution to grant no more loans of his name or anything else to mr micawber 
my dear copperfield said traddles i have already done so because i begin to feel that i have not only been inconsiderate but that i have been positively unjust to sophy my word being passed to myself there is no longer any apprehension but i pledge it to you too with the greatest readiness that first unlucky obligation i have paid i have no doubt mr micawber would have paid it if he could but he could not one thing i ought to mention which i like very much in mr micawber copperfield it refers to the second obligation which is not yet due he don't tell me that it is provided for but he says it will be now i think there is something very fair and honest about that i was unwilling to damp my good friend's confidence and therefore assented after a little further conversation we went round to the chandler's shop to enlist peggotty traddles declining to pass the evening with me both because he endured the liveliest apprehensions that his property would be bought by somebody else before he could repurchase it and because it was the evening he always devoted to writing to the dearest girl in the world i shall never forget him peeping round the corner of the street in tottenham court road while peggotty was bargaining for the precious articles or his agitation when she came slowly towards us after vainly offering a price and was hailed by the relenting broker and went back again the end of the negotiation was that she bought the property on tolerably easy terms and traddles was transported with pleasure i am very much obliged to you indeed said traddles on hearing it was to be sent to where he lived that night if i might ask one other favour i hope you would not think it absurd copperfield i said beforehand certainly not then if you would be good enough said traddles to peggotty to get the flower-pot now I think I should like, it being Sophie's Copperfield, to carry it home myself. Peggotty was glad to get it for him, and he overwhelmed her with thanks, and went his way up Tottenham Court Road, carrying the flower-pot affectionately in his arms, with one of the most delighted expressions of countenance I ever saw. We then turned back towards my chambers. As the shops had charms for Peggotty, which I never knew them possess in the same degree for anybody else, I sauntered easily along, amused by her staring in at the windows, and waiting for her as often as she chose. We were thus a good while in getting to the Adelphi. On our way upstairs I called her attention to the sudden disappearance of Mrs. Crupp's pitfalls, and also to the prints of recent footsteps we were both very much surprised coming higher up to find my outer door standing open which i had shut and to hear voices inside we looked at one another without knowing what to make of this and went into the sitting-room what was my amazement to find of all people upon earth my aunt there and mr dick my aunt sitting on a quantity of luggage with her two birds before her and her cat on her knee like a female robinson crusoe drinking tea mr dick leaning thoughtfully on a great kite such as we had often been out together to fly with more luggage piled about him my dear aunt cried i why what an unexpected pleasure we cordially embraced and mr dick and i cordially shook hands and mrs crop who was busy making tea and could not be too attentive cordially said that she knowed well as mr copperful would have his heart in his mouth when he see his dear relations Hello said my aunt to peggotty who quailed before her awful presence how are you you remember my aunt peggotty said i for the love of goodness child exclaimed my aunt don't call the woman by that south sea island name if she married and got rid of it which was the best thing she could do why don't you give her the benefit of the change what's your name now p said my aunt as a compromise for the obnoxious appellation barkis ma'am said peggotty with a curtsey well 
that's human said my aunt it sounds less as if you wanted a missionary how do you do barkis i hope you are well encouraged by these gracious words and by my aunt's extending her hand barkis came forward and took the hand and curtsied her acknowledgments we are older than we were i see said my aunt we have only met each other once before you know a nice business we made of it then trot my dear another cup i handed it dutifully to my aunt who was in her usual inflexible state of figure and ventured a remonstrance with her on the subject of her sitting on a box let me draw the sofa here or the easy-chair aunt said i why should you be so uncomfortable thank you trot replied my aunt i prefer to sit upon my property here my aunt looked hard at mrs crupp and observed we needn't trouble you to wait ma'am shall i put a little more tea in the pot afore i go ma'am said mrs crupp no i thank you ma'am replied my aunt would you let me fetch another pat of butter ma'am said mrs crupp or would ye be persuaded to try a new-laid hag or should i broil a rasher ain't there nothing i could do for your dear aunt mr copperful nothing ma'am returned my aunt i shall do very well thank you mrs crupp who had been incessantly smiling to express sweet temper and incessantly holding her head on one side to express a general feebleness of constitution and incessantly rubbing her hands to express a desire to be of service to all deserving objects gradually smiled herself one-sided herself and rubbed herself out of the room dick said my aunt you know what i told you about time-servers and wealth-worshippers Mr. Dick, with rather a scared look, as if he had forgotten it, returned a hasty answer in the affirmative. "'Mrs. Crupp is one of them,' said my aunt. "'Barkis, I'll trouble you to look after the tea, and let me have another cup, for I don't fancy that woman's pouring out.' I knew my aunt sufficiently well to know that she had something of importance on her mind, and that there was far more matter in this arrival than a stranger might have supposed i noticed how her eye lighted on me when she thought my attention otherwise occupied and what a curious process of hesitation appeared to be going on within her while she preserved her outward stiffness and composure i began to reflect whether i had done anything to offend her and my conscience whispered to me that i had not yet told her about dora could it by any means be that i wondered as i knew she would only speak in her own good time i sat down near her and spoke to the birds and played with the cat and was as easy as i could be but i was far from being really easy and i should still have been so even if mr dick leaning over the great kite behind my aunt had not taken every secret opportunity of shaking his head darkly at me and pointing at her trot said my aunt at last when she had finished her tea and carefully smoothed down her dress and wiped her lips you needn't go barkis trot have you got to be firm and self-reliant i hope so aunt what do you think inquired miss betsy i think so aunt then why my love said my aunt looking earnestly at me why do you think i prefer to sit upon this property of mine to-night i shook my head unable to guess because said my aunt it's all i have because i'm ruined my dear if the house and every one of us had tumbled out into the river together i could hardly have received a greater shock dick knows it said my aunt laying her hand calmly on my shoulder i am ruined my dear trot all i have in the world is in this room except the cottage and that i have left janet to let barkis i want to get a bed for this gentleman to-night to save expense perhaps you can make up something here for myself anything will do it's only for to-night we'll talk about this more to-morrow i was roused from my amazement and concern for her i am sure for her 
by her falling on my neck for a moment and crying that she only grieved for me in another moment she suppressed this emotion and said with an aspect more triumphant than dejected we must meet reverses boldly and not suffer them to frighten us my dear we must learn to act the play out we must live misfortune down trot End of chapter 34chapter thirty five of david copperfield this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tyke hines david copperfield by charles dickens chapter thirty five depression as soon as i could recover my presence of mind which quite deserted me in the first overpowering shock of my aunt's intelligence I proposed to Mr. Dick to come round to the chandler's shop and take possession of the bed which Mr. Peggotty had lately vacated. The chandler's shop being in Hungerford Market, and Hungerford Market being a very different place in those days, there was a low wooden colonnade before the door, not very unlike that before the house where the little man and woman used to live, in the old weather-glass, which pleased Mr. Dick mightily. The glory of lodging over this structure would have compensated him, I dare say, for many inconveniences, but as there were really few to bear, beyond the compound of flavours I have already mentioned, and perhaps the want of a little more elbow-room, he was perfectly charmed with his accommodation. Mrs. Crupp had indignantly assured him that there wasn't room to swing a cat there, but, as Mr. Dick justly observed to me, sitting down on the foot of the bed nursing his leg, "'You don't trotwood.' I don't want to swing a cat. I never do swing a cat. Therefore, what does that signify to me?" I tried to ascertain whether Mr. Dick had any understanding of the causes of this sudden and great change in my aunt's affairs. As I might have expected, he had none at all. The only account he could give of it was that my aunt had said to him, the day before yesterday, "'Now, Dick, are you really and truly the philosopher I take you for?' That then he had said, "'Yes, he hoped so.' that then my aunt had said, Dick, I am ruined, and then he had said, Oh, indeed, that then my aunt had praised him highly, which she was glad of, and that then they had come to me, and had had bottled porter and sandwiches on the road. Mr. Dick was so very complacent, sitting on the foot of the bed, nursing his leg, and telling me this, with his eyes wide open and a surprised smile, that I am sorry to say I was provoked into explaining to him that ruin meant distress, want, and starvation. But I was soon bitterly reproved for this harshness by seeing his face turn pale and tears course down his lengthened cheeks, while he fixed upon me a look of such unutterable woe that it might have softened a far harder heart than mine. I took infinitely greater pains to cheer him up again than I had taken to depress him, and I soon understood, as I ought to have known at first, that he had been so confident merely because of his faith in the wisest and most wonderful of women, and his unbounded reliance on my intellectual resources. The latter, I believe, he considered a match for any kind of disaster not absolutely mortal. "'What can we do, Trotwood?' said Mr. Dick. "'There's the memorial.' "'To be sure there is,' said I. "'But all we can do just now, Mr. Dick, is to keep a cheerful countenance, and not let my aunt see that we are thinking about it.' He assented to this in the most earnest manner, and implored me, if I should see him wandering an inch out of the right course, to recall him by some of those superior methods which were always at my command. 
but i regret to state that the fright i had given him proved too much for his best attempts at concealment all the evening his eyes wandered to my aunt's face with an expression of the most dismal apprehension as if he saw her growing thin on the spot he was conscious of this and put a constraint upon his head but his keeping that immovable and sitting rolling his eyes like a piece of machinery did not mend the matter at all i saw him look at the loaf at supper which happened to be a small one as if nothing else stood between us and famine and when my aunt insisted on his making his customary repast i detected him in the act of pocketing fragments of his bread and cheese i have no doubt for the purpose of reviving us with those savings when we should have reached an advanced stage of attenuation my aunt on the other hand was in a composed frame of mind which was a lesson to all of us to me i am sure she was extremely gracious to Peggotty, except when I inadvertently called her by that name, and strange as I knew she felt in London, appeared quite at home. She was to have my bed, and I was to lie in the sitting-room, to keep guard over her. She made a great point of being so near the river, in case of a conflagration, and I suppose really did find some satisfaction in that circumstance. "'Trot, my dear,' said my aunt, when she saw me making preparations for compounding her usual night-draught. "'No!' nothing aunt not wine my dear ale but there is wine here aunt and you always have it made of wine keep that in case of sickness said my aunt we mustn't use it carelessly trot ale for me half a pint i thought mr dick would have fallen insensible my aunt being resolute i went out and got the ale myself as it was growing late peggotty and mr dick took that opportunity of repairing to the chandler shop together i parted from him poor fellow at the corner of the street with his great kite at his back a very monument of human misery my aunt was walking up and down the room when i returned crimping the borders of her nightcap with her fingers i warmed the ale and made the toast on the usual infallible principles when it was ready for her she was ready for it with her nightcap on and the skirt of her gown turned back on her knees my dear said my aunt after taking a spoonful of it it's a great deal better than wine not half so bilious i suppose i looked doubtful for she added tut tut child if nothing worse than ale happens to us we are well off i should think so myself aunt i am sure said i well then why don't you think so said my aunt because you and i are very different people i returned stuff and nonsense trot replied my aunt my aunt went on with a quiet enjoyment, in which there was very little affectation, if any, drinking the warm ale with a teaspoon and soaking her strips of toast in it. "'Trot,' she said, "'I don't care for strange faces in general, but I rather like that Barkis of yours, do you know?' "'It's better than a hundred pounds to hear you say so,' said I. "'It's a most extraordinary world,' observed my aunt, rubbing her nose how that woman ever got into it with that name is unaccountable to me it would be much more easy to be born a jackson or something of that sort one would think perhaps she thinks so too it's not her fault said i i suppose not returned my aunt rather grudging the admission but it's very aggravating however she's barkis now that's some comfort barkis is uncommonly fond of you trot there's nothing she would leave undone to prove it said i nothing i believe returned my aunt here the poor fool has been begging and praying about handing over some of her money because she has too much of it the simpleton my aunt's tears of pleasure were positively trickling down into the warm ale 
she's the most ridiculous creature that ever was born said my aunt i knew from the first moment when i saw her with that poor blessed baby of a mother of yours that she was the most ridiculous of mortals but there are good points in barkis affecting to laugh she got an opportunity of putting her hand to her eyes having availed herself of it she resumed her toast and her discourse together ah mercy upon us sighed my aunt i know all about it trot barkis and myself had quite a gossip while you were out with dick i know all about it i don't know where these wretched girls expect to go to for my part i wonder they don't knock out their brains against against mantelpieces said my aunt an idea which was probably suggested to her by her contemplation of mine poor emily said i oh don't talk to me about poor returned my aunt she should have thought of that before she caused so much misery give me a kiss trot i am sorry for your early experience as i bent forward she put her tumbler on my knee to detain me and said oh trot trot and so you fancy yourself in love do you fancy aunt i exclaimed as red as i could be i adore her with my whole soul dora indeed returned my aunt and you mean to say the little thing is very fascinating i suppose my dear aunt i replied no one can form the least idea what she is ah and not silly said my aunt silly aunt i seriously believe it had never once entered my head for a single moment to consider whether she was or not i resented the idea of course but i was in a manner struck by it as a new one altogether not light-headed said my aunt light-headed aunt i could only repeat this daring speculation with the same kind of feeling with which i had repeated the preceding question well well said my aunt i only ask i don't deprecate her poor little couple and so you think you are formed for one another and are to go through a party supper-table kind of life like two pieces of confectionery do you trot she asked me this so kindly and with such a gentle air half playful and half sorrowful that i was quite touched we are young and inexperienced aunt i know i replied and i dare say we say and think a good deal that is rather foolish but we love each other truly i am sure if i thought dora could ever love anybody else or cease to love me or that i could ever love anybody else or cease to love her i don't know what i should do go out of my mind i think ah trot said my aunt shaking her head and smiling gravely blind 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 someone that i know trot my aunt pursued after a pause though of a very pliant disposition has an earnestness of affection in him that reminds me of poor baby earnestness is what that somebody must look for to sustain him and improve him trot deep downright faithful earnestness if you only knew the earnestness of dora aunt i cried oh trot she said again blind blind and without knowing why i felt a vague unhappy loss or want of something overshadow me like a cloud however said my aunt i don't want to put two young creatures out of conceit with themselves or to make them unhappy so though it is a girl and a boy attachment and girl and boy attachments very often mind i don't say always come to nothing still we'll be serious about it and i hope for a prosperous issue one of these days there's time enough for it to come to anything this was not upon the whole very comforting to a rapturous lover but i was glad to have my aunt in my confidence and i was mindful of her being fatigued so i thanked her ardently for this mark of her affection and for all her other kindnesses towards me 
and after a tender good-night she took her nightcap into my bedroom. How miserable I was when I lay down, how I thought and thought about my being poor in Mr. Spenlow's eyes, about my not being what I thought I was when I proposed to Dora, about the chivalrous necessity of telling Dora what my worldly condition was, and releasing her from her engagement if she thought fit, about how I could contrive to live during the long term of my articles when I was earning nothing, about doing something to assist my aunt, and seeing no way of doing anything, about coming down to have no money in my pocket, and to wear a shabby coat, and to be able to carry Dora no little presents, and to ride no gallant greys, and to show myself in no agreeable light. Sordid and selfish as I knew it was, and as I tortured myself by knowing that it was, to let my mind run on my own distress so much, I was so devoted to Dora that I could not help it. I knew that it was base in me not to think more of my aunt, and less of myself, but so far selfishness was inseparable from Dora, and I could not put Dora on one side for any mortal creature. How exceedingly miserable I was that night! As to sleep, I had dreams of poverty in all sorts of shapes, but I seemed to dream without the previous ceremony of going to sleep. Now I was ragged, wanting to sell Dora matches, six bundles for a halfpenny. Now I was at the office in a nightgown and boots, remonstrated with by Mr. Spenlow on appearing before the clients in that airy attire. Now I was hungrily picking up the crumbs that fell from old Tiffy's daily biscuit, regularly eaten when St. Paul struck one. Now I was hopelessly endeavouring to get a license to marry Dora, having nothing but one of Uriah Heep's gloves to offer in exchange, which the whole commons rejected, and still more or less conscious of my own room, I was always tossing about like a distressed ship in a sea of bedclothes. My aunt was restless, too, for I frequently heard her walking to and fro. Two or three times in the course of the night, attired in a long flannel wrapper in which she looked seven feet high, she appeared like a disturbed ghost in my room, and came to the side of the sofa on which I lay. On the first occasion I started up in alarm, to learn that she inferred from a particular light in the sky that Westminster Abbey was on fire, and to be consulted in reference to the probability of its igniting Buckingham Street, in case the wind changed. Lying still, after that, I found that she sat down near me, whispering to herself, "'Poor boy!' And then it made me twenty times more wretched to know how unselfishly minded she was of me, and how selfishly minded I was of myself." It was difficult to believe that a night so long to me could be short to anybody else. This consideration set me thinking and thinking of an imaginary party where people were dancing the hours away, until that became a dream too, and I heard the music incessantly playing one tune, and saw Dora incessantly dancing one dance, without taking the least notice of me. The man who had been playing the harp all night was trying in vain to cover it with an ordinary-sized nightcap. When I awoke, or should I rather say, when I left off trying to go to sleep, and saw the sun shining in through the window at last. There was an old Roman bath in those days at the bottom of one of the streets out of the Strand, it may be there still, in which I have had many a cold plunge. Dressing myself as quietly as I could, and leaving Peggotty to look after my aunt, I tumbled head foremost into it, and then went for a walk to Hampstead. I had a hope that this brisk treatment might freshen my wits a little, and I think it did them good, for I soon came to the conclusion that the first step I ought to take was to try if my articles could be cancelled and the premium recovered. 
I got some breakfast on the heath and walked back to Doctor's Commons, along the watered roads and through a pleasant smell of summer flowers, growing in gardens and carried into town on hucksters' heads, intent on this first effort to meet our altered circumstances. I arrived at the office so soon, after all, that I had half an hour's loitering about the Commons before old Tiffy, who was always first, appeared with his key. Then I sat down in my shady corner, looking up at the sunlight on the opposite chimney-pots, and thinking about Dora, until Mr. Spenlow came in, crisp and curly. "'How are you, Copperfield?' said he. "'Fine morning!' "'A beautiful morning, sir,' I said. "'Could I say a word to you before you go into court?' "'By all means,' said he. "'Come into my room.' I followed him into his room, and he began putting on his gown, and touching himself up before a little glass he had hanging inside a closet door. "'I am sorry to say,' said I, "'that I have some rather disheartening intelligence from my aunt.' "'No,' said he. "'Dear me, not paralysis, I hope.' "'It has no reference to her health, sir,' I replied. "'She has met with some large losses. In fact, she has very little left indeed.' "'You astound me, Copperfield,' cried Mr. Spenlow. I shook my head. "'Indeed, sir,' said I, "'her affairs are so changed that I wish to ask you whether it would be possible, at a sacrifice on our part of some portion of the premium, of course, I put this in on the spur of the moment, warned by the blank expression of his face, to cancel my articles.' What it cost me to make this proposal, nobody knows. It was like asking, as a favour, to be sentenced to transportation from Dora. To cancel your articles, Copperfield? Cancel? I explained with tolerable firmness that I really did not know where my means of subsistence were to come from, unless I could earn them for myself. I had no fear for the future, I said, and I laid great emphasis on that, as if to imply that I should still be decidedly eligible for a son-in-law one of these days, but for the present I was thrown upon my own resources. "'I am extremely sorry to hear this, Copperfield,' said Mr. Spenlow. "'Extremely sorry. It is not usual to cancel articles for any such reason. This is not a professional course of proceeding. It is not a convenient precedent at all. Far from it. At the same time—' "'You are very good, sir,' I murmured, anticipating a concession. "'Not at all. Don't mention it,' said Mr. Spenlow. "'At the same time, I was going to say—' If it had been my lot to have my hands unfettered, if I had not a partner, Mr. Jorkins, my hopes were dashed in a moment, but I made another effort. Do you think, sir, said I, if I were to mention it to Mr. Jorkins? Mr. Spenlow shook his head discouragingly. Heaven forbid, Copperfield, he replied, that I should do any man an injustice, less still Mr. Jorkins. But I know my partner, Copperfield. Mr. Jorkins is not a man to respond to a proposition of this particular nature. Mr. Jorkins is very difficult to move from the beaten track. You know what he is. I am sure I knew nothing about him, except that he had originally been alone in the business, and now lived by himself in a house near Montague Square which was fearfully in want of painting, that he came very late of a day, and went away very early, that he never appeared to be consulted about anything, and that he had a dingy little black hole of his own upstairs, where no business was ever done, and that there was a yellow old cartridge-paper pad upon his desk, unsoiled by ink, and reported to be twenty years of age. "'Would you object to my mentioning it to him, sir?' I asked. "'By no means,' said Mr. Spenlow. Uh, "'But I have some experience of Mr. Jorkins, Copperfield. I wish it were otherwise, for I should be happy to meet your views in any respect. Uh, 
I cannot have the objection to your mentioning it to Mr. Jorkins, Copperfield, if you think it worth while. Availing myself of this permission, which was given with a warm shake of the hand, I sat thinking about Dora, and looking at the sunlight stealing from the chimney-pots down the wall of the opposite house, until Mr. Jorkins came. I then went up to Mr. Jorkins's room, and evidently astonished Mr. Jorkins very much by making my appearance there. "'Come in, Mr. Copperfield,' said Mr. Jorkins. "'Come in.' I went in and sat down, and stated my case to Mr. Jorkins pretty much as I had stated it to Mr. Spenlow. Mr. Jorkins was not by any means the awful creature one might have expected, but a large, mild, smooth-faced man of sixty, who took so much snuff that there was a tradition in the commons that he lived principally on that stimulant, having little room in his system for any other article of diet. "'You have mentioned this to Mr. Spenlow, I suppose?' said Mr. Jorkins, when he had heard me very restlessly to an end. I answered yes, and told him that Mr. Spenlow had introduced his name. "'You said I should object?' asked Mr. Jorkins. I was obliged to admit that Mr. Spenlow had considered it probable. "'I am sorry to say, Mr. Copperfield, I can't advance your object,' said Mr. Jorkins, nervously. "'The fact is, but I have an appointment at the bank, if you'll have the goodness to excuse me.' With that he rose in a great hurry, and was going out of the room, when I made bold to say that I feared then there was no way of arranging the matter. "'No,' said Mr. Jorkins, stopping at the door to shake his head. "'Oh, no, I object, you know,' which he said very rapidly, and went out. "'You must be aware, Mr. Copperfield,' he added, looking restlessly in at the door again, "'if Mr. Spenlow objects—' "'Personally he does not object, sir,' said I. "'Oh, personally,' repeated Mr. Jorkins, in an impatient manner. "'I assure you, there's an objection, Mr. Copperfield. Hopeless. What you wish to be done can't be done. I, I really have got an appointment at the bank.' With that he fairly ran away, and to the best of my knowledge it was three days before he showed himself in the commons again. Being very anxious to leave no stone unturned, I waited till Mr. Spenlow came in, and then described what had passed, giving him to understand that I was not hopeless of his being able to soften the adamantine Jorkins, if he would undertake the task. "'Copperfield,' returned Mr. Spenlow, with a gracious smile, "'you have not known my partner, Mr. Jorkins, as long as I have. Nothing is further from my thoughts than to attribute any degree of artifice to Mr. Jorkins. But Mr. Jorkins has a way of stating his objections which often deceives people. Though, Copperfield,' shaking his head, "'Mr. Jorkins is not to be moved. Believe me.' I was completely bewildered between Mr. Spenlow and Mr. Jorkins, as to which of them really was the objecting partner but I saw with sufficient clearness that there was obduracy somewhere in the firm, and that the recovery of my aunt's thousand pounds was out of the question. In a state of despondency, which I remember with anything but satisfaction, for I know it still had too much reference to myself, though always in connection with Dora, I left the office and went homeward. I was trying to familiarise my mind with the worst, and to present to myself the arrangements we should have to make for the future, in their sternest aspect, when a hackney chariot coming after me, and stopping at my very feet, occasioned me to look up. A fair hand was stretched forth to me from the window, and a face I had never seen without a feeling of serenity and happiness, from the moment when it first turned back on the old oak staircase with the great broad balustrade, and when I associated its softened beauty with the stained-glass window in the church, was smiling on me. 
agnes!' I joyfully exclaimed. "'Oh, my dear Agnes, of all people in the world, what a pleasure to see you!' "'Is it indeed?' said she, in her cordial voice. "'I want to talk to you so much,' said I. "'It's such a lightening of my heart only to look at you. If I had had a conjurer's cap, there is no one I should have wished for but you.' "'What?' returned Agnes. "'Well, perhaps Dora first, I admitted with a blush. "'Certainly Dora first, I hope,' said Agnes, laughing. "'But you next,' said I. "'Where are you going?' She was going to my rooms to see my aunt. The day being very fine, she was glad to come out of the chariot, which smelt—I had my head in it all this time—like a stable put under a cucumber frame. I dismissed the coachman, and she took my arm, and we walked on together. She was like hope embodied to me. How different I felt in one short minute, having Agnes by my side. My aunt had written her one of the odd, abrupt notes, very little longer than a bank-note, to which her epistolary efforts were usually limited. She had stated therein that she had fallen into adversity, and was leaving Dover for good, but had quite made up her mind to it, and was so well that nobody need be uncomfortable about her. Agnes had come to London to see my aunt, between whom and herself there had been a mutual liking these many years. Indeed, it dated from the time of my taking up my residence in Mr. Wickfield's house. She was not alone, she said. Her papa was with her, and Uriah Heep. And now they are partners, said I. Confound him! Yes, said Agnes. They have some business here, and I took advantage of their coming to come too. You must not think my visit all friendly and disinterested, Trotwood, for I am afraid I may be cruelly prejudiced. I do not like to let papa go away alone with him. Does he exercise the same influence over Mr. Wickfield still, Agnes? Agnes shook her head. "'There is such a change at home,' she said, "'that you would scarcely know the dear old house. They live with us now.' "'They?' said I. "'Mr. Heep and his mother. He sleeps in your old room,' said Agnes, looking up into my face. "'I wish I had the ordering of his dreams,' said I. "'He wouldn't sleep there long.' "'I keep my own little room,' said Agnes, "'where I used to learn my lessons. How the time goes! You remember the little panelled room that opens from the drawing-room?' "'Remember, Agnes, when I saw you for the first time coming out at the door with your quaint little basket of keys hanging at your side.' "'It is just the same,' said Agnes, smiling. "'I am glad you think of it so pleasantly. We were so happy.' "'We were, indeed,' said I. "'I want to keep that room to myself still, but I cannot always desert Mrs. Heep, you know.' "'And so,' said Agnes quietly, "'I feel obliged to bear her company when I might prefer to be alone. But I have no other reason to complain of her.' If she tires me sometimes by her praise of her son, it is only natural in a mother. He is a very good son to her." I looked at Agnes when she said these words, without detecting in her any consciousness of Uriah's design. Her mild but earnest eyes met mine with their own beautiful frankness, and there was no change in her gentle face. "'The chief evil of her presence in the house,' said Agnes, "'is that I could not be as near papa as I could wish, Uriah Heep being so much between us, and cannot watch over him, if that is not too bold a thing to say, as closely as I would. But if any fraud or treachery is practising against him, I hope that simple love and truth will be strong in the end. I hope that real love and truth are stronger in the end than any evil or misfortune in the world.' A certain bright smile, which I never saw on any other face, died away, 
even while I thought how good it was, and how familiar it had once been to me, and she asked me, with a quick change of expression, we were drawing very near my street, if I knew how the reverse in my aunt's circumstances had been brought about. On my replying no, she had not told me yet, Agnes became thoughtful, and I fancied I felt her arm tremble in mine. We found my aunt alone, in a state of some excitement. A difference of opinion had arisen between herself and Mrs. Crupp on an abstract question, the propriety of chambers being inhabited by the gentler sex, and my aunt, utterly indifferent to spasms on the part of Mrs. Crupp, had cut the dispute short by informing that lady that she smelt of my brandy, and that she would trouble her to walk out. Both of these expressions Mrs. Crupp considered actionable, and had expressed her intention of bringing before a British duty, meaning, it was supposed, the bulwark of our national liberties. My aunt, however, having had time to cool, while Peggotty was out showing Mr. Dick the soldiers at the horse-guards, and being, besides, greatly pleased to see Agnes, rather plumed herself on the affair than otherwise, and received us with unimpaired good humour. When Agnes laid her bonnet on the table, and sat down beside her, I could not but think, looking on her mild eyes and her radiant forehead, how natural it seemed to have her there, how trustfully, although she was so young and inexperienced, my aunt confided in her, how strong she was indeed in simple love and truth. We began to talk about my aunt's losses, and I told them what I had tried to do that morning. "'That was very injudicious, Trot,' said my aunt, "'but well meant.' You are a generous boy. I suppose I must say young man now, and I am proud of you, my dear. So far, so good. Now, Trot and Agnes, let us look the case of Betsy Trotwood in the face and see how it stands. I observed Agnes turn pale, and she looked very attentively at my aunt. My aunt, patting her cat, looked very attentively at Agnes. Betsy Trotwood, said my aunt, who had always kept her money matters to herself, I don't mean your sister Trot, my dear, but myself, had a certain property. It don't matter how much, enough to live on. More, for she had saved a little and added to it. Betsy funded her property for some time, and then, by the advice of her man of business, laid it out on landed security. That did very well, and returned very good interest, till Betsy was paid off. I am talking of Betsy as if she was a man of war. Well, then Betsy had to look about her for a new investment. She thought she was wiser now than her man of business, who was not such a good man of business by this time as he used to be. I am alluding to your father, Agnes, and she took it into her head to lay it out for herself. So she took her pigs, said my aunt, to a foreign market, and a very bad market it turned out to be. First she lost in the mining way, then she lost in the diving way, fishing up treasure, or some such Tom Tiddler nonsense, explained my aunt, rubbing her nose, and then she lost in the mining way again, and, last of all, to set the thing entirely to rights, she lost in the banking way. I don't know what the bank shares were worth for a little while, said my aunt. Cent per cent was the lowest of it, I believe, but the bank was at the other end of the world, and tumbled into space for what I know. Anyhow, it fell to pieces, and never will and never can pay sixpence. And Betsy's sixpences were all there, and there's an end of them. Least said, soonest mended. My aunt concluded this philosophical summary by fixing her eyes with a kind of triumph on Agnes, whose colour was gradually returning. "'Dear Miss Trotwood, is that all the history?' said Agnes. "'I hope it's enough, child,' said my aunt. "'If there had been more money to lose, it wouldn't have been all, I dare say. Betsy would have contrived to throw that after the rest, and make another chapter, I have little doubt. But there was no more money, and there's no more story.' 
Agnes had listened at first with suspended breath. The colour still came and went, and she breathed more freely. I thought I knew why. I thought she had had some fear that her unhappy father might be in some way to blame for what had happened. My aunt took her hand in hers and laughed. "'Is that all?' repeated my aunt. "'Why, yes, that's all, except—and she lived happily ever afterwards. Perhaps I may add that of Betsy yet, one of these days. Now, Agnes, you have a wise head. So have you, Trot, in some things, though I can't compliment you always.' And here my aunt shook her own at me, with an energy peculiar to herself. "'What's to be done? Here's the cottage. Taking one time with another will produce, say, seventy pounds a year. I think we may safely put it down at that. Well, that's all we've got.' said my aunt, with whom it was an idiosyncrasy, as it is with some horses, to stop very short when she appeared to be at a fair way of going on for a long while. Then, said my aunt after a rest, there's Dick. He's good for a hundred a year, but of course that must be expended on himself. I would sooner send him away, though I know I am the only person who appreciates him, than have him and not spend his money on himself. How can Trot and I do best upon our means? What do you say, Agnes?' "'I say, aunt,' I interposed, "'that I must do something.' "'Go for a soldier, do you mean?' returned my aunt, alarmed. "'Or go to sea? I won't hear of it. You are to be a proctor. We are not going to have any knockings on the head in this family, if you please, sir.' I was about to explain that I was not desirous of introducing that mode of provision into the family, when Agnes inquired if my rooms were held for any long term. "'You come to the point, my dear,' said my aunt. They are not to be got rid of for six months at least, unless they should be underlet, and that I don't believe. The last man died here. Five people out of six would die, of course, of that woman in Nankeen with the flannel petticoat. I have a little ready money, and I agree with you. The best thing we can do is to live the term out here, and get a bedroom hard by. I thought it my duty to hint at the discomfort my aunt would sustain, from living in a continual state of guerrilla warfare with Mrs. Crupp, but she disposed of that objection summarily by declaring that, on the first demonstration of hostilities, she was prepared to astonish Mrs. Crupp for the whole remainder of her natural life. "'I have been thinking, Trotwood,' said Agnes, diffidently, "'that if you had time—I have a good deal of time, Agnes. I am always disengaged after four or five o'clock, and I have time early in the morning. In one way and another,' said I, conscious of reddening a little as I thought of the hours and hours I had devoted to fagging about town, and to and fro upon the Norwood Road, I have an abundance of time.' "'I know you would not mind,' said Agnes, coming to me and speaking in a low voice, so full of sweet and hopeful consideration that I hear it now, the duties of a secretary.' "'Mind, my dear Agnes.' "'Because,' continued Agnes, "'Dr. Strong has acted on his intention of retiring, and has come to live in London, and he asked Papa, I know, if he could recommend him one. Don't you think he would rather have his favourite old pupil near him than anyone else?' "'Dear Agnes,' said I, "'what should I do without you? You are always my good angel. I told you so. I never think of you in any other light.' Agnes answered with her pleasant laugh. That one good angel, meaning Dora, was enough, and went on to remind me that the doctor had been used to occupy himself in his study, early in the morning and in the evenings, and that probably my leisure would suit his requirements very well. I was scarcely more delighted with the prospect of earning my own bread than with the hope of earning it under my old master. In short, acting on the advice of Agnes, I sat down and wrote a letter to the doctor, stating my object, and appointing to call on him next day at ten in the forenoon. This I addressed to Highgate, for in that place, so memorable to me, he lived, and went and posted myself without losing a minute. 
Wherever Agnes was, some agreeable token of her noiseless presence seemed inseparable from the place. When I came back, I found my aunt's birds hanging, just as they had hung so long at the parlour window of the cottage, and my easy-chair imitating my aunt's much easier chair in its position at the open window, and even the round green fan, which my aunt had brought away with her, screwed on to the window-sill. I knew who had done all this by its seeming to have quietly done itself, and I should have known in a moment who had arranged my neglected books in the old order of my school-days, even if I had supposed Agnes to be miles away, instead of seeing her busy with them and smiling at the disorder into which they had fallen. My aunt was quite gracious on the subject of the Thames. It really did look very well with the sun upon it, though not like the sea before the cottage. But she could not relent towards the London smoke which, she said, peppered everything. A complete revolution, in which Peggotty bore a prominent part, was being effected in every corner of my rooms, in regard of this pepper, and I was looking on, thinking how little even Peggotty seemed to do with a good deal of bustle, and how much Agnes did without any bustle at all, when a knock came at the door. "'I think,' said Agnes, turning pale, "'it's Papa. He promised me that he would come.' I opened the door, and admitted not only Mr. Wickfield, but Uriah Heep. I had not seen Mr. Wickfield for some time. I was prepared for a great change in him, after what I had heard from Agnes, but his appearance shocked me. It was not that he looked many years older, though still dressed with the old scrupulous cleanliness, or that there was some unwholesome ruddiness upon his face, or that his eyes were full and bloodshot, or that there was a nervous trembling in his hand, the cause of which I knew, and had for some years seen at work. It was not that he had lost his good looks, or his old bearing of a gentleman, for that he had not, but the thing that had struck me most was, that with the evidences of his native superiority still upon him, he should submit himself to that crawling impersonation of meanness, Uriah Heep. The reversal of the two natures in their relative positions, Uriah's of power and Mr. Wickfield's of dependence, was a sight more painful to me than I can express. If I had seen an ape taking command of a man, I should hardly have thought it a more degrading spectacle. He appeared to be only too conscious of it himself. When he came in he stood still with his head bowed, as if he felt it. This was only for a moment, for Agnes softly said to him, "'Papa, here is Miss Trotwood, and Trotwood, whom you have not seen for a long while.' And then he approached, and constrainedly gave my aunt his hand, and shook hands more cordially with me. In the moment's pause I speak of, I saw Uriah's countenance form itself into a most ill-favoured smile. Agnes saw it too, I think, for she shrank from him. What my aunt saw, or did not see, I defy the science of physiognomy to have made out, without her own consent. I believe there never was anybody with such an imperturbable countenance when she chose. Her face might have been a dead wall on the occasion in question, for any light it threw on her thoughts, until she broke silence with her usual abruptness. "'Well, Wickfield,' said my aunt, as he looked up at her, for the first time, I have been telling your daughter how well I have been disposing of my money for myself, because I couldn't trust it to you, as you were growing rusty in business matters. We have been taking counsel together, and getting on very well, all things considered. Agnes is worth the whole firm, in my opinion." "'If I may humbly make the remark,' said Uriah Heep, with a writhe, "'I fully agree with Miss Betsy Trotwood, and would be only too happy if Miss Agnes was a partner.' "'You're a partner yourself, you know.' returned my aunt, and that's about enough for you, I expect. How do you find yourself, sir?" In acknowledgment of this question, addressed to him with extraordinary curtness, Mr. Heep, uncomfortably clutching the blue bag he carried, replied that he was pretty well, and thanked my aunt, and hoped she was the same. 
and you master i should say mr copperfield pursued uriah i hope i see you well i am rejoiced to see you mr copperfield even under present circumstances i believe that for he seemed to relish them very much present circumstances is not what your friends would wish for you mr copperfield but it isn't money makes the man it's i am really unequal with my humble powers to express what it is said uriah with a fawning jerk but it isn't money here he shook hands with me not in the common way but standing a good distance from me and lifting my hand up and down like a pump-handle that he was a little afraid of and how do you think we are looking master copperfield i should say mister fawned uriah don't you find mr wickfield blooming sir years don't tell much in our fear master copperfield except in rising up the humble namely mother and self and in developing he added as an afterthought the beautiful namely miss agnes he jerked himself about after this compliment in such an intolerable manner that my aunt who had sat looking straight at him lost all patience just take the man said my aunt sternly what's he about don't be galvanic sir i ask your pardon miss trotwood returned uriah i am aware you're nervous go along with you sir said my aunt anything but appeased don't presume to say so i am nothing of the sort if you're a kneel sir conduct yourself like one if you're a man control your limbs sir good god said my aunt with great indignation i am not going to be serpentined and corkscrewed out of my senses uh, mr heep was rather abashed as most people might have been by this explosion which derived great additional force from the indignant manner in which my aunt afterwards moved in her chair and shook her head as if she were making snaps or bounces at him but he said to me aside in a meek voice i am well aware master copperfield that miss trotwood though an excellent lady has a quick temper indeed i think i had the pleasure of knowing her when i was a number clerk before you did master copperfield and it's only natural i am sure that it should be made quicker by present circumstances the wonder is that it isn't much worse i only called to say that if there was anything we could do in present circumstances mother or self or wickfield and heep we should be really glad i may go so far said uriah heep with a sickly smile at his partner uriah heep said mr wickfield in a monotonous forced way is active in the business trotwood what he says i quite concur in you know i had an old interest in you apart from that what uriah says i quite concur in oh what a reward it is said uriah drawing up one leg at the risk of bringing down upon himself another visitation from my aunt to be so trusted in but i hope i am able to do something to relieve him from the fatigues of business master copperfield uriah heep is a great relief to me said mr wickfield in the same dull voice it's a load off my mind trotwood to have such a partner the red fox made him say all this i knew to exhibit him to me in the light he had indicated on the night when he poisoned by rest i saw the same ill-favoured smile upon his face again and saw how he watched me you are not going papa said agnes anxiously will you not walk back with trotwood and me he would have looked to uriah i believe before replying if that worthy had not anticipated him i am bespoke myself said uriah on business otherwise i should have been happy to have kept with my friends but i leave my partner to represent the firm miss agnes ever yours i wish you good day master copperfield and leave my humble respects for miss betsy trotwood with these words he retired kissing his great hand and leering at us like a mask 
We sat there talking about our pleasant old Canterbury days an hour or two. Mr. Wickfield, left to Agnes, soon became more like his former self, though there was a settled depression upon him which he never shook off. For all that, he brightened and had an evident pleasure in hearing us recall the little incidents of our old life, many of which he remembered very well. He said it was like those times to be alone with Agnes and me again, and he wished to heaven they had never changed. I'm sure there was an influence in the placid face of Agnes, and in the very touch of her hand upon his arm, that did wonders for him. My aunt, who was busy nearly all this while with Peggotty in the inner room, would not accompany us to the place where they were staying, but insisted on my going, and I went. We dined together. After dinner Agnes sat beside him as of old, and poured out his wine. He took what she gave him, and no more, like a child, and we all three sat together at a window, as the evening gathered in. When it was almost dark he lay down on a sofa, Agnes pillowing his head and bending over him a little while, and when she came back to the window it was not so dark, but I could see tears glittering in her eyes. I pray heaven that I never may forget the dear girl in her love and truth at that time of my life, for if I should I must be drawing near the end, and then I would desire to remember her best. She filled my heart with such good resolutions, strengthened my weakness so by her example, so directed, I know not how, she was too modest and gentle to advise me in many words, the wandering ardour and unsettled purpose within me, that all the little good I have done, and all the harm I have forborne, I solemnly believe I may refer to her. And how she spoke to me of Dora, sitting at the window in the dark, listened to my praises of her, praised again and round the little fairy figure shed some glimpses of her own pure light that made it yet more precious and more innocent to me. O oh, Agnes, sister of my boyhood, if I had known then what I knew long afterwards! There was a beggar in the street when I went down, and as I turned my head towards the window, thinking of her calm seraphic eyes, he made me start by muttering, as if he were an echo of the morning, blind, blind, blind. End of chapter 35。t of David Copperfield。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。Recording by Tyg Hines。David Copperfield by Charles Dickens。Chapter 36 Enthusiasm I began the next day with another dive into the Roman bath, and then started for Highgate. I was not dispirited now, I was not afraid of the shabby coat, and had no yearnings after gallant greys. My whole manner of thinking of our late misfortune was changed. What I had to do was to show my aunt that her past goodness to me had not been thrown away on an insensible, ungrateful object. What I had to do was to turn the painful discipline of my younger days to account by going to work with a resolute and steady heart. What I had to do was to take my woodman's axe in my hand and clear my own way through the forest of difficulty by cutting down the trees until I came to Dora. And I went on at a mighty rate as if it could be done by walking. When I found myself on the familiar Highgate Road, pursuing such a different errand from that old one of pleasure with which it was associated, it seemed as if a complete change had come on my whole life. But that did not discourage me. With the new life came new purpose, new intention. Great was the labour, priceless the reward. Dora was the reward, and Dora must be won. I got into such a transport that I felt quite sorry my coat was not a little shabby already. 
I wanted to be cutting at those trees in the forest of difficulty under circumstances that should prove my strength. I had a good mind to ask an old man in wire spectacles who was breaking stones upon the road to lend me his hammer for a little while and let me begin to beat a path to Dora out of granite. I stimulated myself into such a heat and got so out of breath that I felt as if I had been earning I don't know how much. In this state I went into a cottage that I saw was to let and examined it narrowly, for I felt it necessary to be practical. It would do for me and Dora admirably, with a little front garden for Jip to run about in and bark at the tradespeople through the railings, and a capital room upstairs for my aunt. I came out again hotter and faster than ever and dashed up to Highgate at such a rate that I was there an hour too early, and though I had not been, should have been obliged to stroll about to cool myself before I was at all presentable. My first care, after putting myself under this necessary course of preparation, was to find the doctor's house. It was not in that part of Highgate where Mrs. Steerforth lived, but quite on the opposite side of the little town. When I had made this discovery I went back, in an attraction I could not resist, to a lane by Mrs. Steerforth's, and looked over the corner of the garden wall. His room was shut up close. The conservatory doors were standing open, and Rosa Dartle was walking, bareheaded, with a quick, impetuous step, up and down a gravel walk on one side of the lawn. She gave me the idea of some fierce thing that was dragging the length of its chain to and fro upon a beaten track, and wearing its heart out. I came softly away from my place of observation, and avoiding that part of the neighbourhood, and wishing I had not gone near it, I strolled about until it was ten o'clock. The church with the slender spire that stands on the top of the hill now was not there then to tell me the time. An old red-brick mansion used as a school was in its place, and a fine old house it must have been to go to school at, as I recollect it. When I approached the doctor's cottage, a pretty old place, on which he seemed to have expended some money, if I might judge from the embellishments and repairs that had the look of being just completed, I saw him walking in the garden at the side, gaiters and all, as if he had never left off walking since the days of my pupilage. He had his old companions about him too, for there were plenty of high trees in the neighbourhood, and two or three rooks were on the grass looking after him, as if they had been written to about him by the Canterbury rooks, and were observing him closely in consequence. Knowing the utter hopelessness of attracting his attention from that distance, I made bold to open the gate and walk after him, so as to meet him when he should turn round. When he did and came towards me, he looked at me thoughtfully for a few moments, evidently without thinking about me at all, and then his benevolent face expressed extraordinary pleasure, and he took me by both hands. "'Why, my dear Copperfield,' said the doctor, "'you are a man!' how do you do i am delighted to see you my dear copperfield how very much you have improved you are quite yes dear me i hoped he was well and mrs strong too oh dear yes said the doctor annie's quite well and she'd be delighted to see you you were always her favourite she said so last night when i showed her your letter and yes to be sure you recollect mr jack maldon copperfield perfectly sir of course said the doctor to be sure he's pretty well too has he come home sir i inquired from india said the doctor yes mr jack baldwin couldn't bear the climate my dear mrs markleham you have not forgotten mrs markleham forgotten the old soldier and in that short time 
mrs markleham said the doctor was quite vexed about him poor thing so we have got him at home again and we have bought him a little patent place which agrees with him much better i knew enough of mr jack maldon to suspect from this account that it was a place where there was not much to do and which was pretty well paid the doctor walking up and down with his hand on my shoulder and his kind face turned encouragingly to mine went on now my dear copperfield in reference to this proposal of yours it's very gratifying and agreeable to me i am sure but don't you think you could do better you achieved distinction you know when you were with us you are qualified for many good things you have laid a foundation that any edifice may be raised upon and is it not a pity that you should devote the springtime of your life to such a poor pursuit as i can offer i became very glowing again and expressing myself in a rhapsodical style i am afraid urged my request strongly reminding the doctor that i already had a profession well well said the doctor that's true certainly your having a profession and being actually engaged in studying it makes a difference but my good young friend what seventy pounds a year it doubles our income dr strong said i dear me replied the doctor to think of that not that i mean to say it's rigidly limited to seventy pounds a year because i have always contemplated making any young friend i might thus employ a present too undoubtedly said the doctor still walking with me up and down with his hand on my shoulder i have always taken an annual present into account my dear tutor said i now really without any nonsense to whom i owe more obligations already than i ever can acknowledge no no interposed the doctor pardon me if you'll take any such time as i have and that is my mornings and evenings and can think it worth seventy pounds a year you will do me such a service as i cannot express dear me said the doctor innocently to think that so little should go for so much dear dear and when you can do better you will on your word now said the doctor which he had always made a very grave appeal to the honour of us boys and my word sir i returned answering in our old school manner then be it so said the doctor clapping me on the shoulder and still keeping his hand there as we still walked up and down and i shall be twenty times happier sir said i with a little i hope innocent flattery if my employment is to be on the dictionary the doctor stopped smilingly clapped me on the shoulder again and exclaimed with a triumph most delightful to behold as if i had penetrated to the profoundest depths of mortal sagacity my dear young friend you have hit it it is the dictionary how could it be anything else his pockets were as full of it as his head it was sticking out of him in all directions he told me that since his retirement from scholastic life he had been advancing with it wonderfully and that nothing could suit him better than the proposed arrangements for morning and evening work as it was his custom to walk about in the daytime with his considering cap on his papers were in a little confusion in consequence of mr jack maldon having lately proffered his occasional services as an amanuensis and not being accustomed to that occupation but we should soon put right what was amiss and go on swimmingly afterwards when we were fairly at our work i found mr jack maldon's efforts more troublesome to me than i had expected as he had not confined himself to making numerous mistakes but had sketched so many soldiers and ladies heads over the doctor's manuscript that i often became involved in labyrinths of obscurity the doctor was quite happy in the prospect of our going to work together on that wonderful performance and we settled to begin next morning at seven o'clock we were to work two hours every morning and two or three hours every night except on saturdays when i was to rest 
On Sundays, of course, I was to rest also, and I considered these very easy terms. Our plans being thus arranged to our mutual satisfaction, the doctor took me into the house to present me to Mrs. Strong, whom we found in the doctor's new study dusting his books, a freedom which he never permitted anybody else to take with those sacred favourites. They had postponed their breakfast on my account, and we sat down to table together. We had not been seated long when I saw an approaching arrival in Mrs. Strong's face before I heard any sound of it. A gentleman on horseback came to the gate, and leading his horse into the little court with the bridle over his arm, as if he were quite at home, tied him to a ring in the empty coach-house wall, and came into the breakfast-parlour whip in hand. It was Mr. Jack Maldon, and Mr. Jack Maldon was not at all improved by India, I thought. I was in a state of ferocious virtue, however, as to young men who are not cutting down trees in the forest of difficulty, and my impression must be received with due allowance. "'Mr. Jack,' said the doctor, "'Copperfield.' Mr. Jack Maldon shook hands with me, but not very warmly, I believe, and with an air of languid patronage, at which I secretly took great umbrage, but his languor altogether was quite a wonderful sight, except when he addressed himself to his cousin Annie. "'Have you breakfasted this morning, Mr. Jack?' said the doctor. "'I hardly ever take breakfast, sir,' he replied, with his head thrown back in an easy chair. "'I find it bores me.' "'Is there any news to-day?' inquired the doctor. Well, "'Nothing at all, sir,' replied Mr. Maldon. "'There's an account about the people being hungry and discontented down in the north, but they're always being hungry and discontented somewhere.' The doctor looked grave, he said, as though he wished to change the subject. Then there's no news at all, and no news, they say, is good news. There's a long statement in the paper, sir, about a murder, observed Mr. Maldon, but somebody is always being murdered, and I didn't read it. A display of indifference to all the actions and passions of mankind was not supposed to be such a distinguished quality at that time, I think, as I have observed it to be considered since. I have known it very fashionable indeed. I have seen it displayed with such success that I have encountered some fine ladies and gentlemen who might as well have been born caterpillars. Perhaps it impressed me the more then because it was new to me, but it certainly did not tend to exalt my opinion of, or to strengthen my confidence in, Mr. Jack Maldon. "'I came to inquire whether Annie would like to go to the opera to-night,' said Mr. Maldon, turning to her. It's the last good night there will be this season, and there's a singer there whom she really ought to hear. She's perfectly exquisite, besides which she's so charmingly ugly, relapsing into languor. The doctor, ever pleased with what was likely to please his young wife, turned to her and said, You must go, Annie, you must go. I would rather not, she said to the doctor. I prefer to remain at home. I would much rather remain at home. Without looking at her cousin, she then addressed me, and asked me about Agnes, and whether she should see her, and whether she was not likely to come that day, and was so much disturbed that I wondered how even the doctor, buttering his toast, could be blind to what was so obvious. But he saw nothing. He told her, good-naturedly, that she was young, and ought to be amused and entertained, and must not allow herself to be made dull by a dull old fellow. Moreover, he said, he wanted to hear her sing all the new singer's songs to him, and how could she do that well unless she went? So the doctor persisted in making the engagement for her, and Mr. Jack Maldon was to come back to dinner. This concluded, he went to his patent place, I suppose, but at all events he went away on his horse, looking very idle. I was curious to find out next morning whether she had been. She had not, 
but had sent into london to put her cousin off and had gone out in the afternoon to see agnes and had prevailed upon the doctor to go with her and they had walked home by the fields the doctor told me the evening being delightful i wonder then whether she would have gone if agnes had not been in town and whether agnes had some good influence over her too she did not look very happy i thought but it was a good face or a very false one i often glanced at it for she sat in the window all the time we were at work and made our breakfast which we took by snatches as we were employed when i left at nine o'clock she was kneeling on the ground at the doctor's feet putting on his shoes and gaiters for him there was a softened shade upon her face thrown from the green leaves overhanging the open window of the low room and i thought all the way to doctor's commons of the night when i had seen it looking at him as he read I was pretty busy now, up at five in the morning and home at nine or ten at night, but I had infinite satisfaction in being so closely engaged, and never walked slowly on any account, and felt enthusiastically that the more I tired myself the more I was doing to deserve Dora. I had not revealed myself in my altered character to Dora yet, because she was coming to see Miss Mills in a few days, and I deferred all I had to tell her until then merely informing her in my letters all our communications were secretly forwarded through miss mills that i had much to tell her in the meantime i put myself on a short allowance of bear's grease wholly abandoned scented soap and lavender water and sold off three waistcoats at a prodigious sacrifice as being too luxurious for my stern career not satisfied with all these proceedings but burning with impatience to do something more I went to see Traddles, now lodging up behind the parapet of a house in Castle Street, Holborn. Mr. Dick, who had been with me to Highgate twice already, and had resumed his companionship with the doctor, I took with me. I took Mr. Dick with me because, acutely sensitive to my aunt's reverses, and sincerely believing that no galley-slave or convict worked as I did, he had begun to fret and worry himself out of spirits and appetite, as having nothing useful to do. In this condition he felt more incapable of finishing the memorial than ever, and the harder he worked at it the oftener that unlucky head of King Charles I got into it. Seriously apprehending that his malady would increase, unless we put some innocent deception upon him and caused him to believe that he was useful, or unless we could put him in the way of being really useful, which would be better, I made up my mind to try if Traddles could help us. Before we went I wrote Traddles a full statement of all that had happened, and Traddles wrote me back a capital answer, expressive of his sympathy and friendship. We found him hard at work with his inkstand and papers, refreshed by the sight of the flower-pot stand and the little round table in a corner of the small apartment. He received us cordially, and made friends with Mr. Dick in a moment. Mr. Dick professed an absolute certainty of having seen him before, and we both said, very likely, the first subject on which I had to consult Traddles was this. I had heard that many men distinguished in various pursuits had begun life by reporting the debates in Parliament. Traddles, having mentioned newspapers to me as one of his hopes, I had put the two things together and told Traddles in my letter that I wished to know how I could qualify myself for this pursuit. Traddles now informed me, as the result of his inquiries, that the mere mechanical acquisition necessary, except in rare cases, for thorough excellence in it, that is to say, a perfect and entire command of the mystery of shorthand writing and reading, was about equal in difficulty to the mastery of six languages, and that it might perhaps be attained by dint of perseverance in the course of a few years. 
Traddles reasonably supposed that this would settle the business, but I, feeling only that here indeed were a few tall trees to be hewn down, immediately resolved to work my way on to Dora through this thicket, axe in hand. "'I'm very much obliged to you, my dear Traddles,' said I. "'I'll begin to-morrow.' Traddles looked astonished, as well he might, but he had no notion as yet of my rapturous condition. "'I'll buy a book.' said I, with a good scheme of this art in it. I'll work at it at the Commons, where I haven't half enough to do. I'll take down the speeches in our court for practice. Traddles, my dear fellow, I'll master it. Dear me, said Traddles, opening his eyes, I had no idea you were such a determined character, Copperfield. I don't know how he should have had, for it was new enough to me. I passed that off and brought Mr. Dick on the carpet. You see, said Mr. Dick wistfully, if I could exert myself, Mr. Traddles, if I could beat a drum or blow anything. Poor fellow! I have little doubt he would have preferred such an employment in his heart to all others. Traddles, who would not have smiled for the world, replied composedly. But you are a very good penman, sir. You told me so, Copperfield. Excellent, said I. And indeed he was. He wrote with extraordinary neatness. "'Don't you think,' said Traddles, "'you could copy writing, sir, if I got them for you?' Dick looked doubtfully at me. "'Eh, Trotwood?' I shook my head. Mr. Dick shook his and sighed. "'Tell him about the memorial,' said Mr. Dick. I explained to Traddles that there was a difficulty in keeping King Charles I out of Mr. Dick's manuscripts, Mr. Dick in the meantime looking very deferentially and seriously at Traddles and sucking his thumb. "'But these writings, you know, that I speak of, are already drawn up and finished,' said Traddles, after a little consideration. "'Mr. Dick has nothing to do with them. Wouldn't that make a difference, Copperfield? At all events, wouldn't it be well to try?' This gave us new hope. Traddles and I, laying our heads together apart, while Mr. Dick anxiously watched us from his chair, we concocted a scheme in virtue of which we got him to work next day, with triumphant success.' On a table by the window in Buckingham Street we set out the work Traddles procured for him, which was to make I forget how many copies of a legal document about some right of way, and on another table we spread the last unfinished original of the great memorial. Our instructions to Mr. Dick were that he should copy exactly what he had before him, without the least departure from the original, and when he felt it necessary to make the slightest allusion to King Charles I, he should fly to the memorial. We exhorted him to be resolute in this, and left my aunt to observe him. My aunt reported to us afterwards that, at first, he was like a man playing the kettle-drums, and constantly divided his attentions between the two, but that finding this confuse and fatigue him, and having his copy there plainly before his eyes, he soon sat at it in an orderly business-like manner, and postponed the memorial to a more convenient time. In a word, although we took great care that he should have no more to do than was good for him, and although he did not begin with the beginning of a week, he earned by the following Saturday night ten shillings and ninepence, and never, while I live, shall I forget his going about to all the shops in the neighbourhood to change his treasure into sixpences, or his bringing them to my aunt arranged in the form of a heart upon a waiter, with tears of joy and pride in his eyes. He was like one under the propitious influence of a charm from the moment of his being usefully employed, and if there were a happy man in the world that Saturday night, it was the grateful creature who thought my aunt the most wonderful woman in existence, and me the most wonderful young man. "'No starving now, Trotwood,' said Mr. Dick, shaking hands with me in a corner. "'I'll provide for her, sir,' and he flourished his ten fingers in the air as if they were ten banks." 
I hardly know which was the better pleased, Traddles or I. It really, said Traddles suddenly, taking a letter out of his pocket and giving it to me, put Mr. Micawber quite out of my head. The letter, Mr. Micawber never missed any possible opportunity of writing a letter, was addressed to me. By the kindness of Mr. Traddles, Esquire, of the Inner Temple. It ran thus. My dear Copperfield, you may possibly not be unprepared to receive the intimation that something has turned up. I may have mentioned to you on a former occasion that I was in expectation of such an event. I am about to establish myself in one of the provincial towns of our favoured island, where the society may be described as a happy admixture of the agricultural and the clerical, an immediate connection with one of the learned professions. Mrs. Micawber and her offspring will accompany me. Our ashes, at a future period, will probably be found commingling in the cemetery attached to a venerable pile, for which the spot I refer to has acquired a reputation, shall I say, from China to Peru. In bidding adieu to the modern Babylon, where we have undergone many vicissitudes, I trust not ignobly, Mrs. Micawber and myself cannot disguise from our minds that we part, it may be for years and it may be for ever, with an individual linked by strong association to the altar of our domestic life. If, on the eve of such a departure, you will accompany your mutual friend, Mr. Thomas Traddles, to our present abode, and there reciprocate the wishes natural to the occasion, you will confer a boon on one who is ever yours, Wilkins Micawber. I was glad to find that Mr. Micawber had got rid of his dust and ashes, and that something really had turned up at last. Learning from Traddles that the invitation referred to the evening then wearing away, I expressed my readiness to do honour to it, and we went off together to the lodging which Mr. Micawber occupied as Mr. Mortimer, which was situated near the top of the Gray's Inn Road. The resources of this lodging were so limited that we found the twins, now some eight or nine years old, reposing in a turn-up bedstead in the family sitting-room, where Mr. Micawber had prepared, in a wash-hand-stand jug, what he called a brew of the agreeable beverage for which he was famous. I had the pleasure on this occasion of renewing the acquaintance of Master Micawber, whom I found a promising boy of about twelve or thirteen very subject to that restlessness of limb which is not an infrequent phenomenon in youths of his age. I also became once more known to his sister, Miss Micawber, in whom, as Mr. Micawber told us, her mother renewed her youth like the phoenix. "'My dear Copperfield,' said Mr. Micawber, "'yourself and Traddles find us on the brink of migration, and will excuse any little discomforts incidental to that position.' Glancing round, as I made a suitable reply, I observed that the family effects were already packed, and that the amount of luggage was by no means overwhelming. I congratulated Mrs. Micawber on the approaching change. "'My dear Mr. Copperfield,' said Mrs. Micawber, "'of your friendly interest in all our affairs I am well assured. My family may consider it banishment, if they please, but I am a wife and mother, and I never will desert Mr. Micawber.' Traddles, appealed to by Mrs. Micawber's eye, feelingly acquiesced. "'That,' said Mrs. Micawber, "'that at least is my view, my dear Mr. Copperfield and Mr. Traddles, of the obligation which I took upon myself, when I repeated the irrevocable words, "'I, Emma, take thee, Wilkins.' I read the service over with a flat candle on the previous night, and the conclusion I derived from it was that I could never desert Mr. Micawber.' and said mrs micawber though it is possible i may be mistaken in my view of the ceremony i never will 
my dear said mr micawber a little impatiently i am not conscious that you were expected to do anything of the sort i am aware my dear mr copperfield pursued mrs micawber that i am now about to cast my lot among strangers and i am also aware that the various members of my family to whom mr micawber has written in the most gentlemanly terms announcing that fact have not taken the least notice of mr micawber's communication indeed i may be superstitious said mrs micawber but it appears to me that mr micawber is destined never to receive any answers whatsoever to the great majority of the communications he writes i may augur from the silence of my family that they object to the resolution i have taken but i shall not allow myself to be swerved from the path of duty mr copperfield even by my papa and mamma were they still living i expressed my opinion that this was going in the right direction it may be a sacrifice said mrs micawber to immure oneself in a cathedral town but surely mr copperfield if it is a sacrifice in me it is much more a sacrifice in a man of mr micawber's abilities oh you are going to a cathedral town said i mr micawber who had been helping us all out of the wash-hand stand jug replied to canterbury in fact my dear copperfield i have entered into arrangements by virtue of which i stand pledged and contracted to our friend heep to assist and serve him in the capacity of and to be his confidential clerk i stared at mr micawber who greatly enjoyed my surprise i am bound to state to you he said with an official air that the business habits and the prudent suggestions of mrs micawber have in a great measure conduced to this result the gauntlet to which mrs micawber referred on a former occasion being thrown down in the form of an advertisement was taken up by my friend heep and led to a mutual recognition now my friend heep said mr micawber who is a man of remarkable shrewdness i desire to speak with all possible respect uh, my friend heep has not fixed the positive remuneration at too high a figure but he has made a great deal in the way of extrication from the pressures of pecuniary difficulties contingent on the value of my services and on the value of those services i pin my faith such address and intelligence as i chance to possess said mr micawber boastfully disparaging himself with the old genteel air will be devoted to my friend heep's service i have already some acquaintance with the law as a defendant on civil process and i shall immediately apply myself to the commentaries of one of the most eminent and remarkable of our english jurists i believe it is unnecessary to add that i allude to mr justice blackstone these observations and indeed the greater part of the observations made that evening were interrupted by mrs micawber's discovering that master micawber was sitting on his boots or holding his head on with both arms as if he felt it loose or accidentally kicking traddles under the table or shuffling his feet over one another or producing them at distances from himself apparently outrageous to nature or lying sideways with his hair among the wine-glasses or developing his restlessness of limb in some other form incompatible with the general interests of society and by master micawber's receiving those discoveries in a resentful spirit i sat all the while amazed by mr micawber's disclosure and wondering what it meant until mrs micawber resumed the thread of the discourse and claimed my attention what i particularly request mr micawber to be careful of is said mrs micawber that he does not my dear mr copperfield in applying himself to this subordinate branch of the law place it out of his power to rise ultimately to the top of the tree i am convinced that mr micawber giving his mind to a profession so adapted to his fertile resources and his flow of language must distinguish himself now for example mr traddles said mrs micawber assuming a profound air a judge or even say a chancellor 
does an individual place himself beyond the pale of those preferments by entering on such an office as mr micawber has accepted my dear observed mr micawber but glancing inquisitively at traddles too we have time enough before us for the consideration of those questions micawber she returned no your mistake in life is that you do not look forward far enough you are bound in justice to your family if not to yourself to take in at a comprehensive glance the extremest point in the horizon to which your abilities may lead you mr micawber coughed and drank his punch with an air of exceeding satisfaction still glancing at traddles as if he desired to have his opinion why the plain state of the case mrs micawber said traddles mildly breaking the truth to her i mean the real prosaic fact you know just so said mrs micawber my dear traddles i wish to be as prosaic and literal as possible on a subject of so much importance is said traddles that this branch of the law even if mr micawber were a regular solicitor exactly so returned mrs micawber wilkins you are squinting and will not be able to get your eyes back has nothing pursued traddles to do with that only a barrister is eligible for such preferments and mr micawber could not be a barrister without being entered at an inn of court as a student for five years do i follow you said mrs micawber with her most affable air of business do i understand my dear mr traddles that in the expiration of that period mr micawber would be eligible as a judge or chancellor he would be eligible returned traddles with a strong emphasis on that word thank you said mrs micawber that is quite sufficient if such is the case and mr micawber forfeits no privilege by entering on these duties my anxiety is set at rest i speak said mrs micawber as a female necessarily but i have always been of opinion that mr micawber possesses what i have heard my papa call when i lived at home the judicial mind and i hope mr micawber is now entering on a field where that mind will develop itself and take a commanding station i quite believe that mr micawber saw himself in his judicial mind's eye on the woolsack he passed his hand complacently over his bald head and said with ostentatious resignation my dear we will not anticipate the decrees of fortune if i am reserved to wear a wig i am at least prepared externally an allusion to his baldness for that distinction i do not said mr micawber regret my hair and i may have been deprived of it for a specific purpose i cannot say it is my intention my dear copperfield to educate my son for the church i will not deny that i should be happy on his account to attain to eminence for the church said i still pondering between whiles on uriah heep yes said mr micawber he has a remarkable head voice and will commence as a chorister our residence at canterbury and our local connection will no doubt enable him to take advantage of any vacancy that may arise in the cathedral corps on looking at master micawber again i saw that he had a certain expression of face as if his voice were behind his eyebrows where it presently appeared to be on his singing us as an alternative between that and bed the woodpecker tapping after many compliments on this performance we fell into some general conversation and as i was too full of my desperate intentions to keep my altered circumstances to myself i made them known to mr and mrs micawber i cannot express how extremely delighted they both were by the idea of my aunt's being in difficulties and how comfortable and friendly it made them when we were nearly come to the last round of the punch i addressed myself to traddles and reminded him that we must not separate without wishing our friends health happiness and success in their new career 
I begged Mr. Micawber to fill us bumpers and proposed the toast in due form, shaking hands with him across the table and kissing Mrs. Micawber to commemorate that eventful occasion. Traddles imitated me on the first particular, but did not consider himself a sufficiently old friend to venture on the second. "'My dear Copperfield,' said Mr. Micawber, rising with one of his thumbs in each of his waistcoat pockets, "'the companion of my youth, if I may be allowed the expression, and my esteemed friend Traddles, if I may be permitted to call him so, will allow me, on the part of Mrs. Micawber, myself, and her offspring, to thank them in the warmest and most uncompromising terms for their good wishes.' It may be expected that on the eve of a migration, which will consign us to a perfectly new existence, Mr. Micawber spoke as if they were going five hundred thousand miles, I should offer a few valedictory remarks to such friends as I see before me. But all that I have to say in this way I have said, whatever station in society I may attain, through the medium of the learned profession of which I am about to become an unworthy member, I shall endeavour not to disgrace, and Mr. Micawber will be safe to adorn under the temporary pressure of pecuniary liabilities contracted with a view to their immediate liquidation but remaining unliquidated through a combination of circumstances i have been under the necessity of assuming a garb from which my natural instincts recoil i allude to spectacles and possessing myself of a cognomen to which i can establish no legitimate pretensions all i have to say on that score is that the cloud has passed from the dreary scene and the god of day is once more high upon the mountain-tops on monday next on the arrival of the four o'clock afternoon coach at canterbury my foot will be on my native heath my name micawber mr micawber resumed his seat on the close of these remarks and drank two glasses of punch in grave succession he then said with much solemnity one thing more i have to do before the separation is complete and that is to perform an act of justice my friend mr thomas traddles has on two several occasions put his name if i may use a common expression to bills of exchange for my accommodation on the first occasion mr thomas traddles was left let me say in short in the lurch the fulfilment of the second has not yet arrived the amount of the first obligation here mr micawber carefully referred to papers was i believe twenty-three four and nine and a half of the second according to my entry of that transaction eighteen six two these sums united make a total if my calculation is correct amounting to forty-one ten eleven and a half my friend copperfield will perhaps do me the favour to check that total i did so and found it correct to leave this metropolis said mr micawber and my friend mr thomas traddles without acquitting myself of the pecuniary part of this obligation would weigh upon my mind to an insupportable extent i have therefore prepared for my friend mr thomas traddles and i now hold in my hand a document which accomplishes the desired object I beg to hand to my friend Mr. Thomas Traddles my I.O.U. for forty-one, ten, eleven and a half, and I am happy to recover my moral dignity, and to know that I can once more walk erect before my fellow-man. With this introduction, which greatly affected him, Mr. Micawber placed his I.O.U. in the hands of Traddles, and said he wished him well in every relation of life. I am persuaded, not only that this was quite the same to Mr. Micawber as paying the money, but that Traddles himself hardly knew the difference until he had had time to think about it. 
Mr. Micawber walked so erect before his fellow man on the strength of this virtuous action that his chest looked half as broad again when he lighted us downstairs. We parted with great heartiness on both sides, and when I had seen Traddles to his own door and was going home alone, I thought, among the other odd and contradictory things I mused upon, that, slippery as Mr. Micawber was, I was probably indebted to some compassionate recollection he retained of me as his boy lodger, for never having been asked by him for money. I certainly should not have had the moral courage to refuse it, and I have no doubt he knew that, to his credit be it written, quite as well as I did. End of chapter 36chapter 37 of david copperfield this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tig hines david copperfield by charles dickens chapter 37 a little cold water my new life had lasted for more than a week and i was stronger than ever in those tremendous practical resolutions that i felt the crisis required i continued to walk extremely fast and to have a general idea that i was getting on I made it a rule to take as much out of myself as I possibly could, in my way of doing everything to which I applied my energies. I made a perfect victim of myself. I even entertained some idea of putting myself on a vegetable diet, vaguely conceiving that, in becoming a graminivorous animal, I should sacrifice to Dora. As yet, little Dora was quite unconscious of my desperate firmness, otherwise than as my letters darkly shadowed it forth. But another Saturday came, and on that Saturday evening she was to be at Miss Mills's, and when Mr. Mills had gone to his whist club, telegraphed to me in the street by a birdcage in the drawing-room middle window, I was to go there to tea. By this time we were quite settled down in Buckingham Street, where Mr. Dick continued his copying in a state of absolute felicity. My aunt had obtained a signal victory over Mrs. Crupp by paying her off, throwing the first pitcher she planted on the stairs out of window, and protecting in person, up and down the staircase, a supernumerary whom she engaged from the outer world. These vigorous measures struck such a terror to the breast of Mrs. Crupp that she subsided into her own kitchen, under the impression that my aunt was mad. My aunt, being supremely indifferent to Mrs. Crupp's opinion and everybody else's, and rather favouring than discouraging the idea, Mrs. Crupp, of late the bold, became within a few days so faint-hearted that rather than encounter my aunt upon the staircase she would endeavour to hide her portly form behind doors, leaving visible, however, a wide margin of flannel petticoat, or would shrink into dark corners. This gave my aunt such unspeakable satisfaction that I believe she took a delight in prowling up and down, with her bonnet insanely perched on the top of her head, at times when Mrs. Crupp was likely to be in the way. My aunt, being uncommonly neat and ingenious, made so many little improvements in our domestic arrangements that I seemed to be richer instead of poorer. Among the rest she converted the pantry into a dressing-room for me, and purchased and embellished a bedstead for my occupation, which looked as like a bookcase in the daytime as a bedstead could. I was the object of her constant solicitude, and my poor mother herself could not have loved me better, or studied more how to make me happy. Peggotty had considered herself highly privileged in being allowed to participate in these labours, and although she still retained something of her old sentiment of awe in reference to my aunt, had received so many marks of encouragement and confidence that they were the best friends possible. But the time had now come, I am speaking of the Saturday when I was to take tea at Miss Mills's, 
when it was necessary for her to return home and enter on the discharge of the duty she had undertaken on behalf of ham so good-bye barkis said my aunt and take care of yourself i am sure i never thought i could be sorry to lose you i took peggotty to the coach-office and saw her off she cried at parting and confided her brother to my friendship as ham had done we had heard nothing of him since he went away that sunny afternoon and now my own dear davy said peggotty if while you're apprentice you should want any money to spend or if while you're out of your time my dear you should want any to set you up and you must do one or the other or both my darling who has such a good right to ask leave to lend it to you as my sweet girl's own old stupid me i was not so savagely independent as to say anything in reply but that if i ever borrowed money of any one i would borrow it of her next to accepting a large sum on the spot i believe this gave peggotty more comfort than anything i could have done and my dear whispered peggotty tell the pretty little angel that i should have so liked to see her only for a minute and tell her that before she marries my boy i'll come and make your house so beautiful for you if you let me i declared that nobody else should touch it and this gave peggotty such a delight that she went away in good spirits i fatigued myself as much as i possibly could in commons all day by a variety of devices and at the appointed time in the evening repaired to mr mills's street mr mills who was a terrible fellow to fall asleep after dinner had not yet gone out and there was no bird-cage in the middle window he kept me waiting so long that i fervently hoped the club would fine him for being late at last he came out and then i saw my own dora hang up the bird-cage and peep into the balcony to look for me and run in again when she saw i was there while jip remained behind to bark injuriously at an immense butcher's dog in the street who could have taken him like a pill dora came to the drawing-room door to meet me and jip came scrambling out tumbling over his own growls under the impression that i was a bandit and we all three went in as happy and loving as could be i soon carried desolation into the bosom of our joys not that i meant to do it but that i was so full of the subject by asking dora without the smallest preparation if she could love a beggar my pretty little startled dora her only association with the word was a yellow face and a nightcap or a pair of crutches or a wooden leg or a dog with a decanter stand in his mouth or something of that kind and she stared at me with a most delightful wonder how can you ask me anything so foolish pouted dora love a beggar dora my own dearest said i i am a beggar how can you be such a silly thing replied dora slapping my hand as to sit there telling such stories i'll make jip bite you her childish way was the most delicious way in the world to me but it was necessary to be explicit and i solemnly repeated dora my own life i am your ruined david i declare i'll make jip bite you said dora shaking her curls if you are so ridiculous but I looked so serious that Dora left off shaking her curls, and laid her trembling little hand upon my shoulder, and first looked scared and anxious, then began to cry. That was dreadful. I fell upon my knees before the sofa, caressing her and imploring her not to rend my heart. But for some time poor little Dora did nothing but exclaim, Oh dear! Oh dear! And oh, she was so frightened! And where was Julia Mills? And oh, take her to Julia Mills, and go away, please, until I was almost beside myself at last after an agony of supplication and protestation i got dora to look at me with a horrified expression of face which i gradually soothed until it was only loving and her soft pretty cheek was lying against mine 
then i told her with my arms clasped round her how i loved her so dearly and so dearly how i felt it right to offer to release her from her engagement because now i was poor how i never could bear it or recover it if i lost her how i had no fears of poverty if she had none my arm being nerved and my heart inspired by her how i was already working with a courage such as none but lovers knew how i had begun to be practical and look into the future how a crust well earned was sweeter far than a feast inherited and much more to the same purpose which i delivered in a burst of passionate eloquence quite surprising to myself though i had been thinking about it day and night ever since my aunt had astonished me is your heart still mine dear dora said i rapturously for i knew by her clinging to me that it was oh yes cried dora oh yes it's all yours oh don't be dreadful i dreadful to dora don't talk about being poor and working hard said dora nestling closer to me oh don't don't my dearest love said i the crust well earned yes yes but i don't want to hear any more about crusts said dora and jip must have a mutton-chop every day at twelve or he'll die i was charmed with her childish winning way i fondly explained to dora that jip would have his mutton-chop with his accustomed regularity i drew a picture of our frugal home made independent by my labour sketching in the little house i had seen at highgate and my aunt in her room upstairs i am not dreadful now dora said i tenderly oh no no cried dora but i hope your aunt will keep in her own room a good deal and i hope she is not a scolding old thing if it were possible for me to love dora more than ever i am sure i did but i felt she was a little impracticable it damped my new-born ardour to find that ardour so difficult of communication to her i made another trial when she was quite herself again and was curling jip's ears as he lay upon her lap i became grave and said my own may i mention something oh please don't be practical said dora coaxingly because it frightens me so sweetheart i returned there is nothing to alarm you in all this i want you to think of it quite differently i want to make it nerve you and inspire you dora oh but that's so shocking cried dora my love no perseverance and strength of character will enable us to bear much worse things but i haven't got any strength at all said dora shaking her curls have i jip oh do kiss jip and be agreeable it was impossible to resist kissing jip when she held him up to me for that purpose putting her own bright rosy little mouth into kissing form as she directed the operation which she insisted should be performed symmetrically on the centre of his nose i did as she bade me rewarding myself afterwards for my obedience and she charmed me out of my own graver character for i don't know how long but dora my beloved said i at last resuming it i was going to mention something the judge of the prerogative court might have fallen in love with her to see her fold her little hands and hold them up begging and praying me not to be dreadful any more indeed i am not going to be my darling i assured her but dora my love if you will sometimes think not despondingly you know far from that but if you will sometimes think just to encourage yourself that you are engaged to a poor man don't don't pray don't cried dora it's so very dreadful my soul not at all said i cheerfully if you will sometimes think of that and look about now and then at your papa's housekeeping and endeavour to acquire a little habit of accounts for instance poor little dora received this suggestion with something that was half a sob and half a scream it will be so useful to us afterwards i went on 
and if you would promise me to read a little a little cookery book that i would send you it would be so excellent for both of us for our path in life my dora said i warming with the subject is stony and rugged now and it rests with us to smooth it we must fight our way onward we must be brave there are obstacles to be met and we must meet and crush them i was going on at a great rate with a clenched hand and a most enthusiastic countenance but it was quite unnecessary to proceed i had said enough i had done it again oh she was so frightened oh where was julia mills oh take her to julia mills and go away please so that in short i was quite distracted and raved about the drawing-room i thought i had killed her this time i sprinkled water on her face i went down on my knees i plucked at my hair i denounced myself as a remorseless brute and a ruthless beast i implored her forgiveness i besought her to look up i ravaged miss mills's work-box for a smelling-bottle and in my agony of mind applied an ivory needle-case instead and dropped all the needles over dora i shook my fists at jip who was as frantic as myself i did every wild extravagance that could be done and was a long way beyond the end of my wits when miss mills came into the room who has done this exclaimed miss mills succouring her friend i replied i miss mills i have done it behold the destroyer or words to that effect and hid my face from the light in the sofa cushion at first miss mills thought it was a quarrel and that we were verging on the desert of sahara but she soon found out how matters stood for my dear affectionate little dora embracing her began exclaiming that i was a poor labourer and then cried for me and embraced me and asked me would i let her give me all her money to keep and then fell on miss mills's neck sobbing as if her tender heart were broken miss mills must have been born to be a blessing to us she ascertained from me in a few words what it was all about comforted dora and gradually convinced her that i was not a labourer from my manner of stating the case i believe dora concluded i was a navigator and went balancing myself up and down a plank all day with a wheelbarrow and so brought us together in peace when we were quite composed and dora had gone upstairs to put some rose-water to her eyes miss mills rang for tea in the ensuing interval i told miss mills that she was ever more my friend and that my heart must cease to vibrate ere i could forget her sympathy i then expounded to miss mills what i had endeavoured so very unsuccessfully to expound to dora miss mills replied on general principles that the cottage of content was better than the palace of cold splendour and that where love was all was i said to miss mills that this was very true and who should know it better than i who loved dora with a love that never mortal had experienced yet but on miss mills observing with despondency that it were well indeed for some hearts if this were so i explained that i begged leave to restrict the observation to mortals of the masculine gender i then put it to miss mills to say whether she considered that there was or was not any practical merit in the suggestion i had been anxious to make concerning the accounts the housekeeping and the cookery book miss mills after some consideration thus replied mr copperfield i will be plain with you mental suffering and trial supply in some natures the place of years and i will be as plain with you as if i were a lady abbess no the suggestion is not appropriate to our dora our dearest dora is a favourite child of nature she is a thing of light and airiness and joy i am free to confess that if it could be done it might be well but and miss mills shook her head i was encouraged by this closing admission on the part of miss mills to ask her whether for dora's sake if she had any opportunity of luring her attention to such preparations for an earnest life she would avail herself of it 
Miss Mills replied in the affirmative so readily that I further asked her if she would take charge of the cookery book, and if ever she could insinuate it upon Dora's acceptance, without frightening her, undertake to do me that crowning service. Miss Mills accepted this trust too, but was not sanguine. And Dora returned, looking such a lovely little creature, that I really doubted whether she ought to be troubled with anything so ordinary. And she loved me so much, and was so captivating, particularly when she made Jip stand on his hind legs for toast, and when she pretended to hold that nose of his against the hot teapot for punishment because he wouldn't, that I felt like a sort of monster who had got into a fairy's bower when I thought of having frightened her, and made her cry. After tea we had the guitar, and Dora sang those same dear old French songs about the impossibility of ever on any account leaving off dancing, la va la, la va la, until I felt a much greater monster than before. We had only one check to her pleasure, and that happened a little while before I took my leave, when Miss Mills, chancing to make some allusion to tomorrow morning, I unluckily let out that, being obliged to exert myself now, I got up at five o'clock. Whether Dora had any idea that I was a private watchman, I am unable to say, but it made a great impression on her, and she neither played nor sang any more. It was still on her mind when I bade her adieu, and she said to me, in her pretty coaxing way, as if I were a doll I used to think, "'Now, don't get up at five o'clock, you naughty boy. It's so nonsensical.' "'My love,' said I, "'I have work to do.' "'But don't do it,' returned Dora. "'Why should you?' It was impossible to say to that sweet little surprised face, otherwise than lightly and playfully, that we must work to live. "'Oh, how ridiculous!' cried Dora. "'How should we live without it, Dora?' said I. "'How? Anyhow!' said Dora. She seemed to think that she had quite settled the question, and gave me such a triumphant little kiss, direct from her innocent heart, that I would hardly have put her out of conceit with her answer for a fortune. Well. I loved her, and I went on loving her most absorbingly, entirely, and completely. But going on, too, working pretty hard, and busily keeping red-hot all the irons I now had in the fire, I would sit sometimes of a night opposite my aunt, thinking how I had frightened Dora that time, and how I could best make my way with a guitar-case through the forest of difficulty, until I used to fancy that my head was turning quite grey. End of chapter 37《ハッピーエンドオブコッピーフィールド》recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty-eight. A dissolution of partnership. I did not allow my resolution with respect to the parliamentary debates to cool. It was one of the irons I began to heat immediately, and one of the irons I kept hot and hammered at with a perseverance I may honestly admire. I bought an approved scheme of the noble art and mystery of stenography, which cost me ten and sixpence, and plunged into a sea of perplexity that brought me, in a few weeks, to the confines of distraction. The changes that were rung upon dots which in such a position meant such a thing, and in such another position something else, entirely different. The wonderful vagaries that were played by circles, the unaccountable consequences that resulted from marks like flies' legs, the tremendous effects of a curve in a wrong place, not only troubled my waking hours, but reappeared before me in my sleep. When I had groped my way blindly through these difficulties, and had mastered the alphabet, which was an Egyptian temple in itself, 
there then appeared a procession of new horrors called arbitrary characters the most despotic characters i have ever known who insisted for instance that a thing like the beginning of a cobweb meant expectation that a pen and ink skyrocket stood for disadvantageous when i had fixed these wretches in my mind i found that they had driven everything else out of it then beginning again i forgot them while i was picking them up i dropped the other fragments of the system in short it was almost heart-breaking it might have been quite heartbreaking, but for dora who was the stay and anchor of my tempest-driven bark every scratch in the scheme was a gnarled oak in the forest of difficulty and i went on cutting them down one after another with such vigour that in three or four months i was in a condition to make an experiment on one of our crack speakers in the commons i shall never forget how the crack speaker walked off from me before i began and left my imbecile pencil staggering about the paper as if it were in a fit this would not do it was quite clear i was flying too high and should never get on so i resorted to traddles for advice who suggested that he should dictate speeches to me at a pace and with occasional stoppages adapted to my weakness very grateful for this friendly aid i accepted the proposal and night after night almost every night for a long time we had a sort of private parliament in buckingham street after i came home from the doctors i should like to see such a parliament anywhere else my aunt and mr dick represented the government or the opposition as the case might be and traddles with the assistance of enfield speakers or a volume of parliamentary orations thundered astonishing invectives against them standing by the table with his finger in the page to keep the place and his right arm flourishing above his head traddles as mr pitt mr fox mr sheridan mr burke lord castlereagh viscount sidmouth or mr canning would work himself into the most violent heats and deliver the most withering denunciations of the profligacy and corruption of my aunt and mr dick while i used to sit at a little distance with my notebook on my knee fagging after him with all my might and main the inconsistency and recklessness of traddles were not to be exceeded by any real politician he was for any description of policy in the compass of a week and nailed all sorts of colours to every denomination of mast my aunt looking very like an immovable chancellor of the exchequer would occasionally throw in an interruption or two as here or no or oh when the text seemed to require it which was always a signal to mr dick a perfect country gentleman to follow lustily with the same cry but mr dick got taxed with such things in the course of his parliamentary career and was made responsible for such awful consequences that he became uncomfortable in his mind sometimes i believe he actually began to be afraid he really had been doing something tending to the annihilation of the british constitution and the ruin of the country often and often we pursued these debates until the clock pointed to midnight and the candles were burning down the result of so much good practice was that by and by i began to keep pace with traddles pretty well and should have been quite triumphant if i had had the least idea what my notes were about but as to reading them after i had got them i might as well have copied the chinese inscriptions of an immense collection of tea-chests or the golden characters on all the great red and green bottles in the chemist's shops there was nothing for it but to turn back and begin all over again it was very hard but i turned back though with a heavy heart and began laboriously and methodically to plod over the same tedious ground at a snail's pace stopping to examine minutely every speck on the way on all sides and making the most desperate efforts to know these elusive characters by sight wherever i met them 
I was always punctual at the office, at the doctor's too, and I really did work, as the common expression is, like a cart-horse. One day when I went to the commons, as usual, I found Mr. Spenlow in the doorway looking extremely grave and talking to himself. As he was in the habit of complaining of pains in his head, he had naturally a short throat, and I do seriously believe he overstarched himself. I was at first alarmed by the idea that he was not quite right in that direction, but he soon relieved my uneasiness. Instead of returning my good morning with his usual affability, he looked at me in a distant ceremonious manner, and coldly requested me to accompany him to a certain coffee-house, which in those days had a door opening into the commons, just within the little archway in St. Paul's churchyard. I complied in a very uncomfortable state, and with a warm shooting all over me, as if my apprehensions were breaking out into buds. When I allowed him to go on a little before, on account of the narrowness of the way, I observed that he carried his head with a lofty air that was particularly unpromising, and my mind misgave me that he had found out about my darling Dora. If I had not guessed this on the way to the coffee-house, I could hardly have failed to know what was the matter when I followed him into an upstairs room, and found Miss Murdstone there, supported by a background of sideboard on which were several inverted tumblers sustaining lemons, and two of those extraordinary boxes, all corners and flutings, for sticking knives and forks in, which, happily for mankind, are now obsolete. Miss Murdstone gave me her chilly finger-nails, and sat severely rigid. Mr. Spenlow shut the door, motioned me into a chair, and stood on the hearth-rug in front of the fireplace. "'Have the goodness to show Mr. Copperfield,' said Mr. Spenlow, "'what you have in your reticule, Miss Murdstone.' I believe it was the old identical steel-clasped reticule of my childhood that shut up like a bite. Compressing her lips in sympathy with a snap, Miss Murdstone opened it, opening her mouth a little at the same time, and produced my last letter to Dora teeming with expressions of devoted affection. "'I believe that is your writing, Mr. Copperfield,' said Mr. Spenlow. I was very hot, and the voice I heard was very unlike mine when I said, "'It is, sir.' "'If I am not mistaken,' said Mr. Spenlow, as Miss Murdstone brought a parcel of letters out of her reticule, tied round with the dearest bit of blue ribbon, "'those are also from your pen, Mr. Copperfield.' I took them from her with a most desolate sensation, and, glancing at such phrases at the top as, My ever dearest and own Dora, my best beloved angel, my blessed one for ever, and the like, blushed deeply and inclined my head. No, thank you, said Mr. Spenlow coldly, as I mechanically offered them back to him. I will not deprive you of them. Miss Murdstone, be so good as to proceed. That gentle creature, after a moment's thoughtful survey of the carpet, delivered herself with much dry unction as follows. I must confess to having entertained my suspicions of Miss Spenlow in reference to David Copperfield for some time. I observed Miss Spenlow and David Copperfield when they first met, and the impression made upon me then was not agreeable. The depravity of the human heart is such— You will oblige me, ma'am, interrupted Mr. Spenlow, by confining yourself to facts. Miss Murdstone cast down her eyes, shook her head as if protesting against this unseemly interruption, and with frowning dignity resumed, "'Since I am to confine myself to facts, I will state them as dryly as I can. Perhaps that will be considered an acceptable course of proceeding. As I have already said, sir, that I have had my suspicions of Miss Spenlow in reference to David Copperfield for some time.' 
I have frequently endeavoured to find decisive corroboration of those suspicions, but without effect. I have therefore forborne to mention them to Miss Spenlow's father, looking severely at him, knowing how little disposition there usually is in such cases to acknowledge the conscientious discharge of duty. Mr. Spenlow seemed quite cowed by the gentlemanly sternness of Miss Murdstone's manner, and deprecated her severity with a conciliatory little wave of his hand. "'On my return to Norwood, after the period of absence occasioned by my brother's marriage,' pursued Miss Murdstone, in a disdainful voice, "'and on the return of Miss Spenlow from her visit to her friend Miss Mills, I imagine that the manner of Miss Spenlow gave me greater occasion for suspicion than before. Therefore I watched Miss Spenlow closely.' dear tender little dora so unconscious of this dragon's eye still resumed miss murdstone i found no proof until last night it appeared to me that miss spenlow received too many letters from her friend miss mills but miss mills being her friend with her father's full concurrence another telling blow at mr spenlow it was not for me to interfere if i may not be permitted to allude to the natural depravity of the human heart at least i may i must be permitted so far to refer to misplaced confidence mr spenlow apologetically murmured his assent last evening after tea pursued miss murdstone i observed the little dog starting rolling and growling about the drawing-room worrying something i said to miss spenlow dora what is that the dog has in his mouth it's paper miss spenlow immediately put her hand to her frock gave a sudden cry and ran to the dog i interposed and said dora my love you must permit me oh jip miserable spaniel this wretchedness then was your work miss spenlow endeavoured said miss murdstone to bribe me with kisses work-boxes and small articles of jewellery that of course i pass over the little dog retreated under the sofa on my approaching him and was with great difficulty dislodged by the fire-irons even when dislodged he still kept the letter in his mouth and on my endeavouring to take it from him at the imminent risk of being bitten he kept it between his teeth so pertinaciously as to suffer himself to be held suspended in the air by means of the document at length i obtained possession of it after perusing it i taxed miss spenlow with having many such letters in her possession and ultimately obtained from her the packet which is now in david copperfield's hand here she ceased and snapping her reticule again and shutting her mouth looked as if she might be broken but could never be bent you have heard miss murdstone said mr spenlow turning to me i beg to ask mr copperfield if you have anything to say in reply the picture i had before me of the beautiful little treasure of my heart sobbing and crying all night of her being alone frightened and wretched then of her having so piteously begged and prayed that stony-hearted woman to forgive her of having vainly offered her those kisses work-boxes and trinkets of her being in such grievous distress and all for me very much impaired the little dignity i had been able to muster i am afraid i was in a tremulous state for a minute or so though i did my best to disguise it there is nothing to say sir i returned except that all the blame is mine dora miss spenlow if you please said her father majestically was induced and persuaded by me i went on swallowing that colder designation to consent to this concealment and i bitterly regret it you are very much to blame sir said mr spenlow walking to and fro upon the hearth-rug and emphasizing what he said with his whole body instead of his head on account of the stiffness of his cravat and spine you have done a stealthy and unbecoming action mr copperfield 
when i take a gentleman to my house no matter whether he is nineteen twenty-nine or ninety i take him there in a spirit of confidence if he abuses my confidence he commits a dishonourable action mr copperfield i feel it sir i assure you i returned but i never thought so before sincerely honestly indeed mr spenlow i never thought so before i love miss spenlow to that extent pooh nonsense said mr spenlow reddening pray don't tell me to my face that you love my daughter mr copperfield could i defend my conduct if i did not sir i returned with all humility can you defend your conduct if you do sir said mr spenlow stopping short upon the hearth-rug have you considered your years and my daughter's years mr copperfield have you considered what it is to undermine the confidence that should subsist between my daughter and myself have you considered my daughter's station in life the projects i may contemplate for her advancement the testamentary intentions i may have with reference to her have you considered anything mr copperfield very little sir i am afraid i answered speaking to him as respectfully and sorrowfully as i felt but pray believe me i have considered my own worldly position when i explained it to you we were already engaged i beg said mr spenlow more like punch than i had ever seen him as he energetically struck one hand upon the other i could not help noticing that even in my despair that you will not talk to me of engagements mr copperfield the otherwise immovable miss murdstone laughed contemptuously in one short syllable when i explained my altered position to you sir i began again substituting a new form of expression for what was so unpalatable to him this concealment into which i am so unhappy as to have led miss spenlow had begun since i have been in that altered position i have strained every nerve i have exerted every energy to improve it i am sure i shall improve it in time will you grant me time any length of time we are both so young sir you are right interrupted mr spenlow nodding his head a great many times and frowning very much you are both very young it's all nonsense let there be an end of the nonsense take away those letters and throw them in the fire give me miss spenlow's letters to throw in the fire and although our future intercourse must you are aware be restricted to the commons here we will agree to make no further mention of the past come mr copperfield you don't want sense and this is the sensible course no i couldn't think of agreeing to it i was very sorry but there was a higher consideration than sense love was above all earthly considerations and i loved dora to idolatry and dora loved me i didn't exactly say so i softened it down as much as i could but i implied it and i was resolute upon it i don't think i made myself very ridiculous but i know i was resolute very well mr copperfield said mr spenlow i must try my influence with my daughter Miss Murdstone, by an expressive sound, a long-drawn respiration, which was neither a sigh nor a moan, but it was like both, gave it as her opinion that he should have done this at first. "'I must try,' said Mr. Spenlow, confirmed by this support, "'my influence with my daughter. Do you decline to take those letters, Mr. Copperfield?' For I had laid them on the table. Yes, I told him I hoped he would not think it wrong, but I couldn't possibly take them from Miss Murdstone.' nor from me said mr spenlow no i replied with the profoundest respect nor from him very well said mr spenlow a silence succeeding i was undecided whether to go or stay at length i was moving quietly towards the door with the intention of saying that perhaps i should consult his feelings best by withdrawing 
when he said with his hands in his coat pockets into which it was as much as he could do to get them and with what i should call upon the whole a decidedly pious air you are probably aware mr copperfield that i am not altogether destitute of worldly possessions and that my daughter is my nearest and dearest relative i hurriedly made him a reply to the effect that i hoped the error into which i had been betrayed by the desperate nature of my love did not induce him to think me mercenary too i don't allude to the matter in that light said mr spenlow it would be better for yourself and all of us if you were mercenary mr copperfield i mean if you were more discreet and less influenced by all this youthful nonsense no i merely say with quite another view you are probably aware that i have some property to bequeath to my child i certainly suppose so and you can hardly think said mr spenlow having experience of what we see in the commons here every day of the various unaccountable and negligent proceedings of men in respect of their testamentary arrangements of all subjects the one on which perhaps the strangest revelations of human inconsistency are to be met with but that mine are made i inclined my head in acquiescence i should not allow said mr spenlow with an evident increase of pious sentiment and slowly shaking his head as he poised himself upon his toes and heels alternately by suitable provision for my child to be influenced by a piece of youthful folly like the present it is mere folly mere nonsense in a little while it will weigh lighter than a feather but i might i might if this silly business were not completely relinquished altogether be induced in some anxious moment to guard her from and surround her with protections against the consequences of any foolish step in the way of marriage now mr copperfield i hope that you will not render it necessary for me to open even for a quarter of an hour that closed page in the book of life and unsettle even for a quarter of an hour grave affairs long since composed there was a serenity a tranquillity a calm sunset air about him which quite affected me he was so peaceful and resigned clearly had his affairs in such perfect train and so systematically wound up that he was a man to feel touched in the contemplation of i really think i saw tears rise to his eyes from the depth of his own feeling of all this but what could i do i could not deny dora and my own heart when he told me i had better take a week to consider of what he had said how could i say i wouldn't take a week yet how could i fail to know that no amount of weeks could influence such love as mine in the meantime confer with miss trotwood or with any person with any knowledge of life said mr spenlow adjusting his cravat with both hands take a week mr copperfield i submitted and with a countenance as expressive as i was able to make it of dejected and despairing constancy came out of the room miss murdstone's heavy eyebrows followed me to the door i say her eyebrows rather than her eyes because they were much more important in her face and she looked so exactly as she used to look at about that hour of the morning in our parlour at blunderstone that i could have fancied i had been breaking down in my lessons again and that the dead weight on my mind was that horrible old spelling-book with oval woodcuts shaped to my youthful fancy like the glasses out of spectacles when i got to the office and shutting out old tiffy and the rest of them with my hands sat at my desk in my own particular nook thinking of this earthquake that had taken place so unexpectedly and in the bitterness of my spirit cursing jip i fell into such a state of torment about dora that i wonder i did not take up my hat and rush insanely to norwood the idea of their frightening her and making her cry and of my not being there to comfort her was so excruciating that it impelled me to write a wild letter to mr spenlow beseeching him not to visit upon her the consequences of my awful destiny 
I implored him to spare her gentle nature, not to crush a fragile flower, and addressed him generally, to the best of my remembrance, as if, instead of being her father, he had been an ogre or the dragon of Wantley. This letter I sealed and laid upon his desk before he returned, and when he came in I saw him, through the half-open door of his room, take it up and read it. He said nothing about it all morning, but before he went away in the afternoon he called me in, and told me that I need not make myself at all uneasy about his daughter's happiness. He had assured her, he said, that it was all nonsense, and he had nothing more to say to her. He believed he was an indulgent father, as indeed he was, and I might spare myself any solicitude on her account. "'You may make it necessary, if you are foolish or obstinate, Mr. Copperfield,' he observed, "'for me to send my daughter abroad again for a term. But I have a better opinion of you. I hope you will be wiser than that in a few days. As to Miss Murdstone, for I had alluded to her in the letter, I respect that lady's vigilance, and feel obliged to her. But she has a strict charge to avoid the subject. All I desire, Mr. Copperfield, is that it should be forgotten. All you have got to do, Mr. Copperfield, is to forget it.' all in the note i wrote to miss mills i bitterly quoted this sentiment all i had to do i said with a gloomy sarcasm was to forget dora that was all and what was that i entreated miss mills to see me that evening if it could not be done with mr mills's sanction and concurrence i besought a clandestine interview in the back kitchen where the mangle was i informed her that my reason was tottering on its throne and only she miss mills could prevent its being deposed I signed myself, hers distractedly, and I couldn't help feeling, while I read this composition over, before sending it by a porter, that it was something in the style of Mr. Micawber. However, I sent it. At night I repaired to Miss Mills's street, and walked up and down until I was stealthily fetched in by Miss Mills's maid, and taken the area way to the back kitchen. I have since reason to believe that there was nothing on earth to prevent my going in at the front door, and being shown up to the drawing-room, except Miss Mills's love of the romantic and mysterious. In the back kitchen I raved as became me. I went there, I suppose, to make a fool of myself, and I am quite sure I did it. Miss Mills had received a hasty note from Dora, telling her that all was discovered, and saying, "'Oh, pray come to me, Julia, do, do!' But Miss Mills, mistrusting the acceptability of her presence to the higher powers, had not yet gone, and we were all benighted in the desert of Sahara. Miss Mills had a wonderful flow of words, and liked to pour them out. I could not help feeling, though she mingled her tears with mine, that she had a dreadful luxury in our afflictions. She petted them, as I may say, and made the most of them. A deep gulf, she observed, had opened between Dora and me, and love could only span it with its rainbow. Love must suffer in this stern world. It ever had been so, and it ever would be so. No matter, Miss Mills remarked, hearts confined by cobwebs would burst at last, and then love was avenged. It was small consolation, but Miss Mills wouldn't encourage fallacious hopes. She made me more wretched than I was before, and I felt, and told her with the deepest gratitude, that she was indeed a friend. We resolved that she should go to Dora the first thing in the morning, and find some means of assuring her, either by looks or words, of my devotion and misery. We parted, overwhelmed with grief, and I think Miss Mills enjoyed herself completely. I confided all to my aunt when I got home, and in spite of all she could say to me, went to bed despairing. I got up despairing, and went out despairing. It was Saturday morning, and I went straight to the Commons. 
I was surprised when I came within sight of our office door to see the ticket porter standing outside talking together and some half-dozen stragglers gazing at the windows which were shut up. I quickened my pace and, passing among them, wondering at their looks, went hurriedly in. The clerks were there, but nobody was doing anything. Old Tiffy, for the first time in his life, I should think, was sitting on somebody else's stool and had not hung up his hat. "'This is a dreadful calamity, Mr. Copperfield,' he said as I entered. "'What is?' I exclaimed. "'What is the matter?' "'Don't you know?' cried Tiffy, and all the rest of them coming round me. "'No,' said I, looking from face to face. "'Mr. Spenlow,' said Tiffy. "'What about him?' "'Dead!' I thought it was the office reeling, and not I, as one of the clerks caught hold of me. They sat me down in a chair, untied my neckcloth, and brought me some water. I have no idea whether this took any time. "'Dead!' said I. "'He dined in town yesterday, and drove down in the phaeton by himself,' said Tiffy, having sent his own groom home by the coach, as he sometimes did, you know. Well, the phaeton went home without him, the horses stopped at the stable gate, the man went out with a lantern, nobody in the carriage. Had they run away?' "'They were not hot,' said Tiffy, putting on his glasses. "'No hotter, I understand, than they would have been, going down at the usual pace. The reins were broken, but they had been dragging on the ground. The house was roused up directly, and three of them went out along the road. They found him a mile off.' "'More than a mile off, Mr. Tiffy,' interposed the junior. "'Was it? I believe you are right,' said Tiffy. "'More than a mile off, not far from the church, lying partly on the roadside and partly on the path upon his face. Whether he fell out in a fit, or got out, feeling ill before the fit came on, or even whether he was quite dead then, though there is no doubt he was quite insensible, no one appears to know. If he breathed, certainly he never spoke. Medical assistance was got as soon as possible, but it was quite useless.' I cannot describe the state of mind into which I was thrown by this intelligence, the shock of such an event happening so suddenly, and happening to one with whom I had been in any respect at variance, the appalling vacancy in the room he had occupied so lately, where his chair and table seemed to wait for him, and his handwriting of yesterday was like a ghost, the indefinable impossibility of separating him from the place, and feeling, when the door opened, as if he might come in, the lazy hush and rest there was in the office, and the insatiable relish with which our people talked about it, and other people came in and out all day, and gorged themselves with the subject, this is easily intelligible to any one. What I cannot describe is how, in the innermost recesses of my own heart, I had a lurking jealousy even of death, how I felt as if its might would push me from my ground in Dora's thoughts, how I was, in a grudging way I have no words for, envious of her grief how it made me restless to think of her weeping to others or being consoled by others how i had a grasping avaricious wish to shut out everybody from her but myself and to be all in all to her at that unreasonable time of all times in the trouble of this state of mind not exclusively my own i hope but known to others i went down to norwood that night and finding from one of the servants when i made my inquiries at the door that miss mills was there got my aunt to direct a letter to her which i wrote I deplored the untimely death of Mr. Spenlow most sincerely, and shed tears in doing so. I entreated her to tell Dora, if Dora were in a state to hear it, that he had spoken to me with the utmost kindness and consideration, and had coupled nothing but tenderness, not a single or reproachful word, with her name. 
I know I did this selfishly, to have my name brought before her, but I tried to believe it was an act of justice to his memory. Perhaps I did believe it. My aunt received a few lines next day in reply, addressed outside to her, within to me. Dora was overcome by grief, and when her friend asked her should she send her love to me, had only cried, as she was always crying, "'Oh, dear papa! Oh, poor papa!' But she had not said no, and that I made the most of. Mr. Jorkins, who had been at Norwood since the occurrence, came to the office a few days afterwards. He and Tiffy were closeted together for some few minutes, and then Tiffy looked out at the door and beckoned me in. "'Oh!' said Mr. Jorkins. "'Mr. Tiffy and myself, Mr. Copperfield, are about to examine the desks, the drawers, and other such repositories of the deceased, with a view of sealing up his private papers and searching for a will. There is no trace of any elsewhere. It may be as well for you to assist us, if you please.' I had been in agony to obtain some knowledge of the circumstances in which my Dora would be placed, as, in whose guardianship, and so forth, and this was something towards it. We began to search at once, Mr. Jorkins unlocking the drawers and desks, and we all taking out the papers. The office papers we placed on one side, and the private papers, which were not numerous, on the other. We were very grave, and when we came to a stray seal, or pencil case, or ring, or any little article of that kind which we associated personally with him, we spoke very low. We had sealed up several packets, and were still going on dustily and quietly when Mr. Jorkins said to us, applying exactly the same words to his late partner as his late partner had applied to him, uh, Mr. Spenlow was very difficult to move from the beaten track. You know what he was. I am disposed to think he had made no will. Oh, I know he had, said I. They both stopped and looked at me. On the very day when I last saw him, said I, he told me that he had, and that his affairs were long since settled. Mr. Jorkins and old Tiffy shook their heads with one accord. "'That looks unpromising,' said Tiffy. "'Very unpromising,' said Mr. Jorkins. "'Surely you don't doubt,' I began. "'My good Mr. Copperfield,' said Tiffy, laying his hand upon my arm and shutting up both his eyes as he shook his head, "'if you had been in the Commons as long as I have, you would know that there is no subject on which men are so inconsistent, and so little to be trusted.' "'Why, bless my soul, he made that very remark,' I replied persistently. "'I should call that almost final,' observed Tiffy. "'My opinion is, no will.' It appeared a wonderful thing to me, but it turned out that there was no will. He had never so much as thought of making one, so far as his papers afforded any evidence, for there was no kind of hint, sketch, or memorandum of any testamentary intention whatever.' what was scarcely less astonishing to me was that his affairs were in a most disordered state it was extremely difficult i heard to make out what he owed or what he had paid or of what he died possessed it was considered likely that for years he could have had no clear opinion on these subjects himself by little and little it came out that in the competition on all points of appearance and gentility then running high in the commons he had spent more than his professional income which was not a very large one and had reduced his private means if they ever had been great which was exceedingly doubtful to a very low ebb indeed there was a sale of the furniture and lease at norwood and tiffy told me little thinking how interested i was in the story that paying all the debts of the deceased and deducting his share of outstanding bad and doubtful debts due to the firm he wouldn't give a thousand pounds for all the assets remaining this was at the expiration of about six weeks 
I had suffered tortures all the time, and thought I really must have laid violent hands upon myself when Miss Mills still reported to me that my broken-hearted little Dora would say nothing when I was mentioned but, oh, poor papa, oh, dear papa, also that she had no other relations than two aunts, maiden sisters of Mr. Spenlow, who lived at Putney, and who had not held any other than chance communications with her brother for many years. Not that they had ever quarrelled, Miss Mills informed me, but that having been, on the occasion of Dora's christening, invited to tea, when they considered themselves privileged to be invited to dinner, they had expressed their opinion in writing that it was better for the happiness of all parties that they should stay away, since which they had gone their road and their brother had gone his. These two ladies now emerged from their retirement and proposed to take Dora to live at Putney. Dora, clinging to them both and weeping, exclaimed, "'Oh, yes, aunts!' please take julia mills and me and jip to putney and so they went very soon after the funeral how i found time to haunt putney i am sure i don't know but i contrived by some means or other to prowl about that neighbourhood pretty often miss mills for the more exact discharge of the duties of friendship kept a journal and she used to meet me sometimes on the common and read it or if she had not time to do that lend it to me how I treasured up the entries, of which I subjoin a sample. Monday. My sweet D, still much depressed, headache, called attention to J as being beautifully sleek. D fondled J. Associations, thus awakened, opened floodgates of sorrow. Rush of grief admitted. Are tears the dewdrops of the heart? J. M. Tuesday. D, weak and nervous, beautiful in pallor. Do we not remark this in the moon likewise? J. M. D. J. M. and J. took airing in carriage. J. looking out of window and barking violently at dustman, occasioned smile to overspread features of D. Of such slight links is chain of light composed? J. M. Wednesday. D. comparatively cheerful, sang to her as congenial melody, evening bells, effect not soothing but reverse, D. inexpressibly affected, found sobbing afterwards in own room, quoted verses respecting self and young gazelle, ineffectually, also referred to patience on monument. Query. Why on monument? J. M. Thursday. D. certainly improved, better night, slight tinge of damask revisiting cheek, resolved to mention name of D. C introduced same cautiously in course of airing d immediately overcome oh dear dear julia oh i have been a naughty and undutiful child soothed and caressed drew ideal picture of d c on verge of tomb d again overcome oh what shall i do what shall i do oh take me somewhere much alarmed fainting of d and glass of water from public house uh, poetical affinity chequered sign on doorpost chequered human life alas J. M. Friday, day of incident, man appears in kitchen with blue bag, for ladies' boots left out to heel. Cook replies, no such orders. Man argues point. Cook withdraws to inquire, leaving man alone with J. On Cook's return, man still argues point, but ultimately goes. J. missing. D. distracted. Information sent to police. Man to be identified by broad nose and legs like balustrades of bridge. Search made in every direction. No J. D. weeping bitterly and inconsolable. Renewed reference to young gazelle. Appropriate but unavailing. Towards evening strange boy calls. Brought into parlour. Broad nose but no balustrades. Says he wants a pound and knows dog. Declines to explain further, though much pressed. 
pound being produced by d takes cook to little house where j alone tied up to leg of table joy of d who dances round j while he eats his supper emboldened by this happy change mentioned d c upstairs d weeps afresh cries piteously oh don't 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 it is so wicked to think of anything but poor papa embraces j and sobs herself to sleep must not d c confine himself to the broad pinions of time j m miss mills and her journal were my sole consolation at this period to see her who had seen dora but a little while before to trace the initial letter of dora's name through her sympathetic pages to be made more and more miserable by her were my only comforts i felt as if i had been living in a palace of cards which had tumbled down leaving only miss mills and me among the ruins i felt as if some grim enchanter had drawn a magic circle round the innocent goddess of my heart which nothing indeed but those same strong pinions capable of carrying so many people over so much would enable me to enter End of chapter thirty eight Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.